Hey guys, and welcome back to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, and we are at episode number 22 now, the double deuce of Monday Warfare, covering the Monday Night War era, of course, WWF Monday Night Raw and WCW Monday Nitro, this time for the week of June 10th, 1996, and I'm your host, Ray Russell, and joining me for this episode of Monday Warfare is Mr. Steven Ekstat. Steve, how goes things in your world? What's been going on with you, Steve? Shit, man. Same stuff, different day. You know how it goes. Steve, a man of a few words there. I was, (laughs) (laughs) But tell me, bro, are you excited for this upcoming episode of Monday Warfare? This show's something else, so I'm looking forward to getting into it. All right, and just a reminder, Monday Warfare is part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. You can listen to Monday Warfare in our sister show, The Wrestling Memory Grenade, on WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com or any of your favorite podcast streaming apps from Apple to Spotify, Google Pod, and beyond. And of course, Steve, we're coming off a big Nitro angle last week. It was Scott Hall showing up for a second time in WCW, this time being confronted by Sting and promising to return with a big surprise this week. Meanwhile, over on Monday Night Raw, we had Naked Gold Dust. (laughs) Quite the comparison there, huh? Indeed. Uh, we'll get to it when we get to the to the angle, but man, Nitro's kicking butt. Yeah, we're gonna have to see if Vince can hold up. Now, remember, this is in the middle of a long TV taping for Monday Night Raw. I think we're on week three of four weeks of taping they did all at one time back on May twenty seventh. So Vince can't really do a whole lot to try to combat Nitro at this point in the Monday Night War. And as sometimes Steve. Uh, well, not only do we always cover everything that happens on Raw and Nitro, but we like to cover everything happening behind the scenes as well in some WWF and WCW news. In some weeks, we have a lot of news. In some weeks, we have a little news. And this week, it's a little bit of both. Over in the WCW front, very little news. I'm sure that's going to change very soon with the NWO <laughs> making their way in. But right now, lots of WWF news to get into, and that's what I want to do. So let's get going. And it all starts with Brian Pillman. It's reported that Brian Pillman finally signs with Titan. Pillman now part of the World Wrestling Federation. DeMelt says the latest chapter of Brian Pillman's saga came on June 7th when he signed a three-year contract with the WWF. Pillman's contract with WCW expired on April 17th, just two days after severing the Humvee wreck near his home in Cincinnati. Pillman had been negotiating with both the WWF and WCW in the interim, going back and forth between the sides. With his WCW contract at $225,000 per year running out about a month before his 34th birthday, Pillman devised a long-term plan to work the world, using every means possible to turn him into what was perceived to be the hottest heel in the business. Pillman's angles and vignettes largely due to some very underrated acting ability, I'll agree with that, and some thought-out creativity became the talk of the wrestling business. A WCW angle was scheduled to build into a worked firing to such a level that everyone in the company would be fooled, leading to a shocking comeback. Of course, this was all going to take place during the period that Pillman's contract was expiring, and he worked his former bosses into coming up with the idea that was really his idea to enable him to have as much negotiating leverage as possible when the most important contract period of his career was coming up. WCW and mainly Hulk Hogan, brother, seeing the response Pillman got on a Nitro in Winston-Salem after his quote-unquote firing, Hogan wanted Pillman back immediately, destroying the planned angle to hold him out and bring him back for something big in the future. 
to be one of those gang of eight goons. You remember this show, Steve, on Uncensored oh, yeah. that took on the team of Hulk Hogan and Savage. So Hogan says, wait a minute, Pillman's over, brother. I got to beat him with those other seven guys, dude. So he pulls Pillman back into things. They announced Pillman for the match. Now, it doesn't go as planned. Pillman, who wasn't cleared to work the Uncensored pay-per-view because of throat surgery 10 days earlier, did not appear on Uncensored. So by this point, WCW began to believe that instead of being the ones doing the working, they were the ones that were being worked. And people in the company started speculating that the throat surgery was yet another Pillman work. Demelt says it wasn't. However, if you go to Dark Side of the Ring on Brian Pillman, Demelt changes the story a little bit. It wasn't a work. There was throat surgery involved, but I believe he was just having something removed that, that uh, Meltzer said would grow back fairly often due to all of his throat surgeries. It was nothing important that needed to be taken care of. It wasn't life-threatening. It was just something kind of like cosmetic almost, but inside. And uh, so that's why Pillman took the time off. Could he have worked the show? Yes. Meltzer came out and said that in recent months, a year or whatever it's Did, been. Didn't you say like it was something he had to do periodically? Yes. Yeah, like every like year. He's, he's, had or so. he's had this a lot and he right. conveniently used it to get out uncensored. What a Correct. what a smart guy. <laughs> well, I, I think he had this surgery before they wanted him back, but he could have worked the pay per view and I just opted right. not to use that for his excuse. Smart guy. You know yeah, you, yeah. you know Hogan was gonna drop the leg otherwise. Uh Pillman he was apparently take the pinfall, Oh, that's yeah, that's what yeah, absolutely. Pillman apparently had strong allies in Jim Cornette and Jim Ross and the WWF booking committee who apparently convinced Vince McMahon that Pillman's character of being psychotic was all a work. I don't know about that. Since the WWF wanted Pillman, that meant WCW wanted not to lose him every bit as bad, if not worse. And on the morning of June 1st, Pillman and Eric Bischoff agreed to a three-year deal, which would pay him a figure believed to be in the range of over a million dollars in total. However, when the contract was presented to Pillman's agents, Bischoff had two provisions in the contract. One, and most importantly, 90-day cycle, Steve, built into the contract, which basically meant WCW could terminate the contract if it wished after every quarterly period. I'm not signing that either. Secondly, Pillman wouldn't be flown first class to all of his scheduled appearances. The latter provision, which Pillman demanded, was more of a negotiating leverage issue rather than a deal breaker. But the 90-day cycles was, in hindsight, the deal breaker. Bischoff refused to break on either provision, and in reality, lost Pillman over not backing down on the cycles. With Bischoff believing that deal was done and the cycles were simply a negotiating point, he was going to win. Pillman was reinserted into storylines and clips, as we'll see, of his last appearance airing on Nitro upcoming, and also back on June 3rd as well, and he was talked about as part of the beginning of a potential angle, which apparently would have led to the new Four Horsemen versus the veteran Four Horsemen. So Pillman and Benoit would form their own horsemen, leading against Flair and Arn Anderson, which kind of makes sense if we see some of the story building into the Great American Bash with Chris Benoit as well. Obviously, that gets scrapped, and uh, we go on. In dramatic fashion, as of all his moves of late have been, Pillman went back to McMahon, and the two sides quickly came together for a three-year deal. Money terms are not known, as there was confidentiality clauses in both sets of negotiations. It is reliably assumed Pillman wouldn't have walked away so quickly from the type of money Bischoff had put on the table if he wasn't getting something at least close to as good, if not better, on paper, rather than McMahon famous, all I'm offering is an opportunity contract. Those are very famous. Very famous. 
The WWF structured two different contracts, one of which would be a 90-day contract as a non-wrestler. Of course, we all know Pillman injured right now in 1996, since Pillman wouldn't be able to wrestle for a while anyway, which would cover the 90 days right of refusal to a wrestling contract and the other 33 months of the contract as a wrestling contract. Pillman signed with the WWF, announcing the legit information that the contract would enable Brian Pillman to continue to work independent dates with ECW, and he could retain his own personal 900 number. No wonder he didn't want to go back to WCW. I bet he wasn't going to get to keep that with Mean Gene lurking around. (laughs) Pass the fucking potatoes! So, Brian Pillman is uh, permitted to keep working indie dates with ECW, keep his own personal 900 number, and independent merchandising like the Brian Pillman shirt that used to be advertised on ECW programming during this time period. Uh, Conditions unique in a WWF contract, no doubt. You don't even get those now. So <laughs> Pillman was so far ahead of the game as far as the, the contract goes. Just amazing. This is what this is. This is the benefits you you have when you have two companies at the I wouldn't say necessarily at the top of their game, but are close to hitting that peak where you can negotiate something like this. If you would have came along a year earlier, there would have been no chance at any of this. Well, if he came along a year earlier, we would have seen like what was it, California Brian? He would have never, he wouldn't have gotten a hundred thousand dollars, much less a million dollars. Yeah, but Brian Pillman, I mean, he did an excellent job of uh, you know working both sides against each other, getting the most. Like you said, it's uh, it was great times to be a wrestler, maybe not business wise at the at this point yet, but uh, certainly when you have you know you can play off of uh, both companies and and get the most for your uh, family, taking home a million dollars here. You're presuming at least. On a three-year deal, Brian Pillman probably would have never seen money anything like that had uh, Nitro not come around to compete with Raw here. And then on top of that, he gets all these agreements to continue working with ECW on the side. Of course, we know Vince McMahon was also working with ECW on the side, but we wouldn't find out for many years to come. Yeah, that's it's crazy to think about. He, I'm a, he was his own negotiator, right? He didn't have like an agent or anything. Yeah, I mean, if he did, I'm sure Pillman was uh, definitely uh, very uh, deep into the dealings as well. And uh, yeah, just sure. ex- excellent job. And I don't know how much Vince actually even paid attention to WCW. I mean, let's let, everybody likes to pretend like Vince is like, oh, shit, I'm worried. I got to go watch this. That's just not Vince McMahon. So I don't know how much of this Brian Pillman shit he saw up front. Uh, I don't know you know, what, what was chirping in his ear that he was worried that maybe this guy really is a psychopath. And uh, let's not trust him up front. But Cornette and Jim Ross, they both told the story where they weren't sure either at first. But, you know, Jim Ross always talks about Pillman giving him that wink as he was leaving the room. And Ross kind of, oh, okay, I get it now. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting that, they, you know, that whole thing. And the 90-day cycles, I mean, that's just good business. Smart on Brian Pillman's part because what happens, let's say NWO doesn't co- come back, but, but Hulk Hogan comes back and he beats Brian Pillman by fall brawl. That's the end of Brian Pillman. He's, he's yeah. done. And, uh, you know, and uh, no long-term storylines there. Even if you do a horseman deal for a little while, by the end of the year, Pillman's done. He's not working there three years. Bischoff's not giving him a million dollars. That's not happening. Definitely not. Definitely not. I think, too, also, uh, according to, I don't know who told the story, but didn't didn't it just come out that Vince didn't even know who Sting was before they signed him? I think he knew who Sting was, but he didn't know how over he was. He He didn't realize where he was on the roster. Was he really that over, pal? So it's like... I mean, some of these stories can kind of confirm that Vince really doesn't give a shit about what's going on elsewhere. It's, right. It's probably and that's not just wrestling. That's just in the in the entire world. In life. In world, yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. It's probably his lackeys and things probably more concerned than he ever is. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So 
Brian Pillman does a good job of uh, getting himself some serious coin here, a million dollars over three years. He won't live to, unfortunately, see all of that money come to fruition. But uh, as of right now, and again, you look at the injury. He knew the injury he had. He kind of played uh, played both sides knowing the injury he had and, and got a contract signed before they realized that he wasn't coming back in 90 days. And uh, had he been in WCW after 90 days, maybe, say, 180 days, I don't think he would have, you know, Bischoff would have probably uh, axed him. So I think a good call there by Brian Pillman, and uh, that's where we are right now with the Brian Pillman situation. We go on, Steve, comings and goings in the WWF. Besides Brian Pillman, Vince McMahon has either come close to or has completed a deal with Ron Simmons, damn, who is expected to debut as a heel at the next TV tapings. McMahon met with Simmons at his home in Georgia after the last set of tapings. Can't wait to see what he comes in. They're just going to use him as Ron Simmons, right? They're not going to give him some stupid gimmick, I wouldn't think. I mean, he's fucking Ron Simmons. Why not? Why not give him a gimmick? My God. (laughs) Also expected to debut at those tapings include Jim Neidhart with a new gimmick. Wonder what, or should I say who that will be? Also, Tracy Smothers, Dirty White Boy, Tony Anthony, Alex Porteau, Tom Brandy, and Bill Irwin, all repackaged with new gimmicks. They are all being brought in just for TV, Steve, to be given a new gimmick, a few wins, and then used to put over the top baby faces without sacrificing so many heels on TV. Now, we know a couple of these guys wind up being baby faces themselves, but in general, that is what their job title is once they come in. And Jim Ross and, and Cornette have both stated that they knew that heading in. Cornette felt bad for the guys. A lot of these guys, former Smoky Mountain alumni, Tony Anthony, Tracy Smothers, guys like that. But unfortunately, I, at least they got jobs. I guess they're getting paid. You have to look at it that way. And uh, yeah, some of these guys are handed some, not all of these guys, or handed some pretty bad gimmicks by the time they arrive. Yeah. There's also been some question as to whether, and we talked about this last week, I believe, there was some question as to whether or not the one, two, three kid will return. It's looking less likely by the day, says DeMeltz. Also, the gangsters in paradise, or at least that's what Meltzer calls them. I never heard them named on TV. That's Sam Moo, the former head shrinker, and Big Maddie Smalls, the future Rosie, are already gone from the company. Remember, we just saw them trying to sell crack in the aisleway the other week. And, and trying to get Fatu to come back and make a difference with them on the street. Uh, Samu was going to be suspended for violating a company policy. I wonder what that would have been. And, huh. it, <laughs> and it wound up with Samu and Rosie, the future Rosie, both quitting the company. So the Samoan gangster party in, in ECW, uh, no longer with the WWF, a one-time shot on Monday Night Raw. Blink and you'll miss him. Yeah, I didn't even realize Rosie was that old. I don't know his age, but I didn't know he was around in the business that long before he you know, became rosy and three-minute warning and all that. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, indeed. So, unfortunately, we never get to see the, the epic feud between Fatu and the Forces of Good versus the Crackslangers, which would have been an awesome tag team name, better than the Gangsters like in Paradise. That's not even Sam. remotely clever. <laughs> Definitely not. The Samoan, what were they called in the Samoan Gangster Party? That's fine, right. too. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's Vince, man. It's Vince. It's Vince. I gotta own the name, pal. It appears that Jeff Jarrett, for the 18th time now, has given notice (laughs) to Titan and is working out his notice in the USWA as well as he plans to be WCW bound this fall when his contract in the World Wrestling Federation expires. So we're going to see Jeff Jarrett showing up on Nitro by the fall. And uh, lastly here, Rad Radford, a.k.a. Louis Mucciolo, a.k.a. Louis Spicoli, was given its unconditional release rather than the expected conditional release, meaning obviously they either don't believe WCW would use him or they just don't care. 
He's expected to start with ECW shortly as he had an ECW start date held back because WWF wouldn't allow him to appear on the shows until he asked for his WWF release. So uh, Vince said, you can go work ECW, pal. Just I don't want to pay you anymore. And that's basically what happens there with Luis Piccoli, who randomly pops up with a crew cut uh, in the summer of 96. I remember it well. Just smash the hell out of El Puerto Riqueño before going uh, one-on-one with Sabu in his debut in ECW Arena. Who broke his fingers or the gimmick did it when he did that? Tommy NWO Dreamer. Sign? Tommy Dreamer. Dreamer. Yeah. Gave him the old uh, click sign to the face. And uh, <laughs> Dreamer said, I'm going to break those fingers. And, <laughs> Didn't the story just come out about him, how Vince never really cared for him at all? I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's very like possible. A- I don't know that Vince even remembers what Rad Rad for. But, uh, you have to figure they cared. So- somebody did somewhere because they used Louie for years as one of the top tier enhancement guys on the syndicated TV. And then they that's told him, they, they told well, they, well, they told him to go bulk up, you know, to come back. And he had a, he had a nice little run down there in AAA as well as part of uh, Los Gringos Locos, Art Bar, Eddie Guerrero. Louis wasn't as big as they were in, in the, you know, in the Madonna's group, boyfriend, right? Madonna's boyfriend, Louis Spicoli. That's right. But uh, yes, Spicoli often. I, 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 I saw a story recently where they was talking about him. And when he passed, they was like, eh, like they just totally blew it off or, or something. I can't remember. But, you know, I, you know, we got a long way to get there. But I do remember Larry Zabisco, uh, you know, he was in the middle of a feud with Louis Spicoli. Spicoli being the NWO's la- lackey. He wasn't part of the NWO, but he was like Scott Hall's lackey. So he was kind of feuding with Larry Zabisco for Scott Hall. And, and it was right after Spicoli passed away, Larry Zabisco goes on TV and in classic old school fashion continues the shoot or the continues the, the, the kayfabe and says, like, I was once told if you have nothing nice to say about some somebody, don't say anything at all. So I'm not going to say anything. And that was right after he died. And I was like, wow, man, I, he must really hate him, which I guess, you know, he didn't. But it's just Larry being Larry, man. Old school. Wow. Yeah, I suppose. So uh, Spicoli leaves the World Wrestling Federation. He'll pop up in ECW. I loved his baby face run there. He'll go heel, though. I was I was not a fan of Louis Spicoli, the heel in ECW. Just never bought into it. And then shortly after that, he goes to WCW and then, you know, gets stuck under the... <laughs> I want to say, I want to blame the click. I want to blame Holland Nash for what happens with Spicoli. But the truth is, like, he stopped being used here in the WWF because of a situation like this where he had been found passed out in, in a yard or something on Soma's. And I can't remember if like they had to like revive him or, or what the situation was, but it was really bad. And it's been a few months before this. So I, you know, he was already in the doghouse anyway. So Louis Spicoli uh, off to ECW and, you know, I enjoyed his run there for the next six, seven months. So he was like disco before disco, just being the wolf pack lackey. And he kind of stole Louis gimmick. Mm, Louis was better at it. I thought. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> Certainly like a better Disco. worker. Instead, <laughs> Disco stole his gimmick but, and did it half-assed. So. Here's a story of Vince being Vince, Steve. WWF is attempting to get exclusives with some of the major arenas, which may or may not cause another fight with WCW. In particular, the WWF has gotten an exclusive on the new building in Buffalo. With WCW set to do record business in Buffalo on June 7th in the final event of the old War Memorial, with the new building not giving them a date. They are shut out of Buffalo. Thus, they uh, they can't return to Buffalo because of Vince McMahon, unless they find themselves some other arena somewhere. There is talk of WCW filing suit, but we've heard that talk going back to Jim Crockett days, and nothing ever comes of it. To So Vince, Vince being Vince. Yeah, like it's crazy that he thinks he can do this in the middle of 96. I understand. Like 
88, 89 with Hogan running the show and selling out all the time. But Jesus, what the hell are you offering Buffalo? Uh, he's like, just going, I think, just I think at this point they're just writing off the name. You know, obviously yeah, you're watching that WWF stuff. That's what people say back in the day. You know, even if you're watching WCW, they called everything WWF. People didn't know the difference or care. You know, non-wrestling fans. Right, I yeah. mean, yeah. So it's just uh, it's it's Vince being Vince. That's <laughs> we move on more stories. Is it really Vader time, Steve? Because the belief is Vader isn't getting over as the killer heel they'd hoped for. Although he does look to be the favorite to win the King of the Ring at this point, it's being blamed on his weight. Not that Vader isn't too heavy, because he kind of is, but inherently, you can't make a killer heel out of someone who isn't pushed as a killer. Makes sense. Vader got over immediately with the Gorilla Monsoon angle, but since that point, his matches have been too long and too competitive for someone on his way up that they want to get over as a killer. I'll agree to that. I mean, he had a little, a mini competitive match with Duke the Dumpster not too long ago. Stupid. Demelt says, once Vader is over as a killer, Doing long competitive matches and still winning allows the opponent to get over by giving him a good fight while still losing, which is true. Uh, But yeah, Vader hasn't really been used too well. Honestly, I have to agree since the Gorilla Monsoon angle. I know they went into the Yokozuna storyline. I like that idea. But again, Yokozuna's weight being an issue and Vader, all of these nagging injuries also being an issue. Vader has not been healthy since he got to the company, if you don't, if if people don't remember way back when at the beginning of the year when he debuted at the Royal Rumble, he was already injured. That's why they did the suspension angle the next night on Raw so that he could go back home and heal. Uh, they just wanted him as part of the Royal Rumble. That's why he showed up for the Royal Rumble pay per view. So Vader's been hurt since he came to the WWF, and, and it, it continues. I don't know that it gets any better the entire year. No, I don't think so either. Probably not. That, that, I think that's what killed him more than anything was being sent home for a month or two after doing that angle with monsoon, I get the suspension, but after, you know, one or two weeks, you just forget about him. You know, he's there, but he's not on TV establishing himself even more. It'd have been nice if he had like a three or four week run where he's just terrorizing people in the back, anyone and everybody, just a big ass bully. And then he goes in the ring and kills people, you know, establish him as a monster like that. And then, maybe write him off as a suspension, like give him one more chance. And then he just does it again. Cause he doesn't care. Uh, instead of just doing the one angle, I, I get it. He's hurt, but it's not to the point where he can't work. Yeah. I think they were just trying to get him bit. back off the road as fast as they could, but then they announced the match for Yokozuna at WrestleMania. I'm, I'm hyped at the time. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be good. This I'm, I'm into this match. And then they almost immediately change it to a six man tag, realizing that this is not going to be a very good match. If we do this at WrestleMania, plus we need to get all these other guys on the show as well. I, I think they booked wisely there and made that a six man. I can't imagine what that would look like had it not been because I saw what it was as a six man. Yeah, it wasn't it, very good. Didn't he come out on Raw with like a, a sweater on to kind of hide his injury or whatever, too? Yes, that didn't that's right. Anything. No. <laughs> that didn't help anything either. Yeah. Big men love sweaters. Bill Cosby. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunate for him. He came, in, he came into WWF a year late. Yeah, it, it, yeah absolutely. We go on, though. We'll talk a little bit more about Vader later on and uh, in the next show as well. But right now, we're going to talk about the British Bulldogs, British bullshit. And according to one source, the storyline conclusion to the Smith-Shawn Michaels deal was supposed to be that it would come out that it was Diana Smith who tried to seduce Michaels, and he turned her down. And then as the woman scorned, she made up this tale about Shawn attempting to go after her. The same source said that neither Diana nor Davey were comfortable with that portrayal, and that won't be how it ends up. 
We discussed last episode on Monday Warfare about the Bulldog giving his notice for when his contract expires in 90 days. DeMelt speculated this was done by Smith as an act of leverage, much like Brian Pillman, for a better contract, and he really had no plans to leave the WWF for WCW. McMahon and Davey Boy Smith had their meeting on June 6th at the office to discuss Davey's future with the company. Smith apparently told McMahon that he had a big money deal proposed by WCW, but also talked of wanting to stay. McMahon apparently told Smith WWF never planned on doing anything with the angle to embarrass his family. Yeah, sure, pal. And that, pro- and that problem was supposedly taken care of. At this point, Smith hasn't agreed to stay, but WWF people think the odds of him leaving are lower than that of Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Ted DiBiase. So Davey Boy Smith trying to play the WWF against WCW, even though he apparently doesn't really have a deal in place with WCW. He's still trying to get more money here from Vince. Like, hey, man, appreciate what you got. Vince McMahon, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't blame him if that's if that was the rumored end to the storyline. I mean, you got you're going to get beat by Sean, and then your your wife's going to look like she doesn't even want to be with you. <laughs> you know, like if you're happily married with Bulldog, why would you go after another man? So I, I wouldn't. I know it's a work, and it's just a gimmick. But you know, it's that's not something I would want to do either. To be yeah, honest, yeah, and, and I wonder. And, and again, it says according to one source, whatever that source may be, and. Yeah. And I have to question too in that in that situation. How does that play out? If you have your rematch at the pay per view, King of the Ring, and Sean retains the title, sorry for the spoiler, guys, it happened. How do you play it up? Like, like you're done with the storyline, so why are you telling the story after the fact about Diana? It just doesn't make any sense. So I'm not sure that that's really true. I guess you could use it to get into that match at King of the Ring. I guess use that as the build towards King of the Ring. Her saying, uh, I went after him. He set me up, so I made up this story or whatever. So uh, I guess you could do it that way to lead into King of the Ring, even though the match was already set. So if you're going to end it and he's going to get beat definitively at King of the Ring, yeah, why would you continue it on by having him get look even more stupid by saying his wife didn't want to be with him and was trying to get with Sean? I'd be telling people to F off with that stuff too. You don't know who, who set the rumor, who said it, or who that source is. So. It could be, you know, somebody trying to play it. Maybe they could use that to try to get leverage in his contract negotiations. Like, I'm not playing that shit. I'll just quit. I don't care. I'll go to WCW. Yeah, the, uh, I think that's, that, I think that's that absolutely movie. silly. I mean, this is all, all, you know, it's all TV. This is all fabricated nonsense. So for it to affect anyone uh, uh, in real life, I, I don't know. I don't really know don't about know all that. My, my only, my, I think the only reason I would disagree with any of this, I would refuse any of this shit, is because it's awful. It's just yeah, that, that, it's awful soap opera point, shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I mean, just on TV, like, how do you take him serious at all? Yeah, you can't beat the champ. His wife doesn't want anything to do with him. She's trying to get with the champ. I mean, you just look stupid. Uh, no other way to put it. Like, you would completely kill Davy Boy right at right there. I mean, if he looks competitive in the match with Sean and he loses, that's fine. He lost to the champion. That's easy to you know. You could drop him down a peg and keep him relevant, but you do that you basically neutered the guy and i guess pun intended yeah it's stupid storytelling but at the same time like i can see why bulldog would not want his character to be completely knocked out like that no thanks you gotta protect your character to some degree uh we roll on with yoko ono see what i did with her yoko ono (laughs) yoko zuna is booked through the end of this month that's june of 1996 but will be given a lot of time off after the end of the month to get his weight problems under control. He'll get a lot of time off. 
As we'll see on this upcoming Raw, they do an interview to start a storyline with Yoko losing faith in himself. In reality, Yokozuna works a couple of house show dates here in June, Steve, and about a half a dozen in July, and another half a dozen in August, mostly as a substitute for the injured Ahmed Johnson. So Yoko was supposed to go off the road almost immediately after this TV taping. He does come back and fill a few shows for Ahmed Johnson, but so outside of a few upcoming TV appearances, Yokozuna is already planned to be gone. It's crazy to think just in three years, he went from main event in two manias to being basically out of the company because he couldn't keep his weight under control. Yeah, and it's it's we it's been noticeably bad as you know since we've been as it progresses here throughout the Monday Night War that Yokozuna just how big he's gotten here in 1996. Yeah, it's crazy. I can't, I think it was on the 93 show where they would always talk about he's getting bigger. He's bigger this week. He's we fed him rice, and now it's like it's so far beyond that that it's more health is more important than you you working, buddy. So it's just a sad situation. He could have been amazing because I think he would have evolved as a talent and as a worker. If he could have stayed at his 92, 93, hell, even his AWA stuff. I've seen the pictures you posted of him today. They look how small he was. He looked like Fatu, just had a big ass, you know. And if he would have <laughs> stayed that way, he could have been so agile, so athletic, and done so many different things if he would have just kept his weight under control. It would have been so much, so amazing to watch. Yeah, I mean, anybody can go out there and find any of uh, Yokozuna's stuff as Kokina in the AWA or in Mexico or in Japan or any of the other places he worked. He could really move. I mean, he was really good. Like any of the Samoans, he could really move for his size. And, uh, I mean, look what he did as Yokozuna when he first came in. I mean, he was doing much more drop kicks and things like that before, uh, you know, going to the top rope and, and whatnot prior to his, his waking, heading into the WWF 92 yeah, unfortunately, we don't get to call a whole lot more of Yokozuna here in the WWF as part of the Monday Night War, and that's you know that's a sad thing. But it's like Bruce Pritchard said on I believe it was Bruce Pritchard might have been Jim Ross, might have been any one of those guys said on a podcast I listened to a few months back. Uh, they they knew they knew it was only a matter of time before Yokozuna started failing the state athletic you know to tests when when they come to check the blood pressure and things, and he was going to be considered a liability, and they were not going to allow him to compete. They knew it was just a matter of time. It was going to start happening and, you know, they weren't even going to be able to use them anyway. It's, it's just unfortunate, but it, it is what it is. And uh, that's where we're at right now with the Yokozuna. And we'll talk a little bit more about that during raw here. Uh, things are starting to look a bit cloudy here, Steve, as if they haven't been for a while in the WWF, the body Donna's new manager will debut at an NWA indie show on June 14th in New Jersey. I got, I got here, it says, the only thing I've heard is that it will be a man dressed up like a woman to feud with Sonny, but I'll go a little bit more with, than that. It's uh, Chris Candido's buddy from the old indies back up there in Jersey, uh, a fellow by the name of Jimmy Shoulders. We'll see him on the free-for-all at one of the upcoming In Your Houses, or no, at the uh, King of the Ring, I believe, free-for-all. We'll see, uh, we'll see old uh, Cloudy make his uh, one and only appearance in the WWF. The, that stuff is has never been funny to me or... It's, even, it's not even worth my time. I don't. That that sounds like a Pat Patterson idea all day. Probably, yeah. I mean, that's just that's ridiculous. Drag is people do it, and I get it. It's fine, you know. If that's how you want to do do it. I don't care. But to mock it and do a joke and ha ha cloudy against Sunny, like it's so lazy and, and terrible. Well, Pat loved the guy guy. He loved the uh, comedy uh, aspect of wrestling. <laughs> So Pat went one way and Vince, you know, went the toilet humor way. So neither one of them really, I don't know. 
Patterson had some good ideas sometimes, but uh, if if he was the man that came up with Cloudy or who, whoever did, I just I don't get it, and it didn't it didn't last more than a day. Thank God for that. And we talk about Cloudy. Cloudy was set to feud with Sonny, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because Cloudy was a pretty big dude. I just don't see him really feuding with Sonny. But speaking of Sonny, I wrote lies, all lies. Imagine that involving Sonny. The stories about Sonny being the most downloaded celebrity and Ultimate Warrior having the number one comic book in the world are all hype. Demelt says he saw a list of the top 10 downloaded celebrity and Sonny was not on that list. Go figure, Steve. Instead, it was international stars and national stars like Pam Anderson and Jenny McCarthy. So for anybody who really believed that, that Sonny, a wrestling personality, and don't get me wrong, she was probably number one on my download list, but for non-wrestling fans, and there was a lot of them in the mid-90s, nobody had a clue what the fuck Sonny was. She's the top 10 download. Get the fuck out of here. And even worse, and they've really been building this on Raw, the Warrior having the number one comic book is just an absolute <laughs> joke. The Warrior book is an even bigger work, says DeMeltz, as most major comic book stores don't even carry it. You're shitting me. And it is, isn't oh, uh, even produced by a major distributor. Meltzer, I mean... <laughs> I'm not even going to defend my guy here because it is terrible and I get it, but can Meltzer name any other distributor besides like Marvel or DC? I mean, probably not. Like, Distrucity Comics. Jack. You're right. Distrucity like, Comics. Like, distributors mean jack shit, bro. Like, who cares? <laughs> who cares who distributes it? If it's well, good, it's I, good. Well, I, I got to believe that he is accurate in the fact that it wasn't carried by most major comic book stores. I, I, they probably no, don't no, even no, know what no, Warrior no, Comic Book was. That. I'm just saying, like, Coliseum Video is not a top distributor, so like, who cares? Like, whoever gets it out there gets it out there. I don't, I don't know, man. It's just stupid shit. The stuff that he complains about, like, it's a whole work. The whole business is a work, but when it comes to actual numbers, it's like can't work those. You know, you can't fabricate numbers to make your work company look better than it is. Like, who cares? And uh, one last bit of news here, and, and don't worry, guys, WCW, very light on the news this week, but WWF news, just lots to get into this week. In fact, our next episode on June 17th, we'll be covering all of June 17th, Nitro and Raw, very, very little news next week as, as we head into the King of the Ring pay-per-view. Uh, but before we get there, a ratings note from last week, the largest gap on the June 3rd TV ratings between Nitro and Raw came in Nitro's favor, believe this or not, when... Naked Goldust was delivering that interview with the belt over his private parts. So uh, Naked Goldust, it scared people away. Over to Nitro. Imagine that. Shocker. <laughs> people were not ready for that stuff. No, that was, uh, it, it was, you know, it was like, it was really big, you know, like the, the Goldust, the, the whole androgynous shit that Vince wanted and everything was really huge at the beginning of the year. And then they kind of toned it down. And then boom, it's just like, it's like, it, you know it's on steroids overnight. Let's go back to what we was going to do in the first place. Who gives a shit? You know, it's like they stopped caring about well, outside forces. <laughs> and finally, yes. guys, we can get going with Monday Night Raw for June 10th, 1996, taped all the way back May 27th, Fayetteville, North Carolina at the Cumberland County Memorial Auditorium. Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler open the show. Lawler has a special portrait of the warrior that he wants to present to UW, Warrior Man, to smooth things over later in the pro <laughs> later in tonight's program. And uh, we head off to the ring for a King of the Ring qualifying match. Great way to kick off the show. Yokozuna taking on Owen Hart with Jim Cornette in his corner. 
Former tag team champions collide here, Steve, for a slot in the King of the Ring tournament. It's the former king, Owen Hart, and the Slammy Award-winning Owen Hart, cast on his hand and all. Owen Hart back in action. This is his first match back since he injured his arm. Uh, Yokozuna here billed at 666 pounds and looks the biggest he's ever been. No doubt about that. Owen jumps Yokozuna at the bell, but Yoko fires back and takes control. Yoko misses a big elbow, though, and Cornette jabs him with a tennis racket. Owen stuns Yoko with a series of punches before finally dropping him with a big spin kick. Now it's Owen Hart who misses the elbow off the middle rope, and it's time for Yokozuna to fire up, sort of. Lots of chops, but little moving around. Owen Hart feeding into Yokozuna here. Yoko doing very little work uh, in his fire up. Owen uh, doing the legwork here. Yoko, though, up for the bonsai drop, but randomly loses balance here. I don't know why he let go of the ropes and takes a bump backwards. Luckily, Owen moves out of the way, so he's not flattened. But wouldn't that mean he would have moved away from the bonsai as well, Steve? Owen Hart moves out of the way. Yokozuna loses balance on the middle rope, falls backwards, takes a big bump. Yoko dumped he had a big fall, and Owen Hart covers him with feet on the ropes for leverage. Owen Hart pins Yokozuna, former WWF champion Yokozuna, in 3 minutes and 57 seconds. Vince barely sells the matches an upset as Owen advances to the quarterfinals. So yeah, even Vince McMahon on commentary, he must have been, I don't want to use the word disgusted with Yoko, I'm sure he was, you know, pretty good friends, as much as Vince can be a friend with one of his talents, with, with uh, Rodney, if you will. Uh, but he just, he didn't really sell it like it was the, the this big giant thing that Owen Hart beat Yokozuna. It was like, Owen Hart beat Yokozuna, advances on. So uh, yeah. this is pretty much it, though, for the most part, uh, for Yokozuna. Now, we'll see him again a couple times, but but just here and there sporadically, this is really the beginning of the end. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, there has to be some sadness there. I, Vince maybe not be a buddy to people, but, you know, he still has a heart and probably feels bad that, gotten this out of control and he wants to do everything he can to help him so maybe burying him a little bit on tv and acting like he's nothing nothing major can help motivate him to get his shit together who knows but yeah he barely sold it it's just like it's just like a regular match and there was like right on to the next segment it's like owen just beat a former world champion to get into the king of the ring or advance further into it and uh it should have been bigger than what it was but it wasn't i didn't realize that he did this like you said, the Humpty, the Yoko Dumpty fall twice. I, I know he does it at SummerSlam for Austin. Right. I, I totally forgot about him doing it here. So yeah, they get they yeah. get a little more creative with the SummerSlam bump. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, was there. I was there live. Bit. I remember that one. Like, what the hell just happened? Was that like a holy shit moment? Like, oh. yeah, that was like, what the hell was? It? Yeah, you don't see that every day. Was that was that on purpose? Was that was that real? Yeah, I heard about it, and I was like, dude, the ring broke. Right? How are they gonna have the rest of the show? <laughs> I remember hearing about it like the night of the show. I didn't get the pay-per-view, but I remember hearing about that. I'm like, can they still have the show? The ring's broke. Yeah. Definitely was not educated up on it when I was 10 <laughs> years old, I guess. <laughs> so we uh, get a clip of the WWF in Chicago at the Rosemont Horizon last night. Nothing like being live and in person on the Attitude Adjustment Tour. Gotta love those tour names. We get a plug for Jake the Snake Roberts and his upcoming shoot interview on the Action Zone. He talks about doing drugs and drinking alcohol. And then it's backstage to Jim Ross, who interviews Yokozuna about his loss to Owen Hart. A despondent Yokozuna doesn't know what happened out there. He just knows he lost. And he lost to Owen Hart. He said it like that. And this is not the old Yoko, he says. He's too focused on Cornette. He's losing it. He can't concentrate. Yokozuna says he has to go. He has to find himself. And that was the idea here. Yokozuna had to go find himself and... 
He was supposed to go lose weight. In a perfect world, he was going to go lose weight, come back and be a main event star. Uh, but unfortunately, he doesn't even get to go away completely because they need him to fill you know, certain shows here upcoming uh, uh, you know, in place of Ahmed Johnson, who unfortunately gets injured. And it's just he's the uh, only guy you can go to. Well, uh, he's probably the only guy you can go to at that level uh, on the card. I would think there's not a whole lot here in the WWF in 1996. So, well, yeah, but like, who was um, who was Ahmed? Was it Farouk? Right. So he's replacing Ahmed in the Farouk. Okay. I don't think sense. he's feuding. I don't think he's wrestling Farouk. I don't. I don't believe those were the matches. But uh, he's replacing Ahmed on the house shows. Either way. Yeah. Wow. Well, I gotta find somebody. If you really wanted him to get help, maybe just not bring him back. Just let him go stay at the... <laughs> well, I don't know that that really whatever. played a whole lot into Yokozuna's weight gain, uh, bringing him back no, for no, six matches saying, like, in July. I don't, I don't know. No, I mean, they talk about sneaking him in fried, fried buckets of fried chicken into, into Duke or wherever that was. Like, yeah. Jesus. Whoever did that, you paid in his life getting lost. I know it's not your fault, but it's his fault for eating him, but you shouldn't be enabling him. That's the complete opposite of what that... Duke is supposed to be doing in that situation. Anyway, and, uh, we can move on here. All right, and that's what we'll do. It's the final King of the Ring qualifying match for 1996. The wild man, Mark Merrow, with Sable in his corner, taking on Skip. No more Sonny in his corner. Jake Roberts, one of the men who has advanced into the King of the Ring tournament, is on commentary for some odd reason. On Vince loved getting Jake on these shows. Jake says that Mark Merrow has Sable, Skip had Sonny, and Jake... He chose a snake. He said, what's wrong with me? So Jake's showing a little humor here on commentary as the match gets going. The body Donna is looking for a manager as Skip plays the heel here in this match, even though the body Donna's are technically baby faces. We get feeling out early and some great bumps by Skip off of a Japanese and Mexican arm drag by Mark Merrow. But Skip bails while Merrow leaps out of the ring and then flips back inside. That's great and all when it's you know done for a reason. We talked about that a show or two ago. Mark Merrow just doing things for the sake of proving he can do it. And uh, that's I think that was his major downfall here in the WWF. There weren't a lot of people that were going to tell him no, and he just did a lot of shit that didn't make any sense. And he just, just because he learned it, he learned it last week. I, hey, guys, I, I learned this new wild move. I'm going to try it out. And they just go, yeah, whatever you want, man. Uh, back inside the ring, though, Merrow runs into a boot in the corner, and Skip takes control. Nice snap suplex by Candido here, but Merrow makes the comeback and a sort of sloppy stun gun in the corner that somehow sees Skip wind up in a seated position on the top turnbuckle. Really weird as uh, Mero catches Skip and kind of stun guns him, hot shots him into the top turnbuckle, then Skip somehow turns around and sits on the top buckle. Made no sense to me, but it feels like another move that Mero put together. Mero goes up the ropes but gets knocked off as Skip comes off with a dropkick, but Mero dropkicks him as well. Very sloppy here, not pretty at all. Uh, they claim Mero, quote-unquote, connected and Skip did not. Both guys trying a dropkick at the same time. It, it just wasn't good. However, Skip somehow manages to remain in control with a bow and arrow stretch. And Skip now up top for a top rope Frankensteiner. But Mero doesn't move. And Skip on his fucking head. Oof, Steve, did you see this? Skip trying that top rope Frankensteiner. Mero grabs the top rope to block taking the move. And Skip goes down, boom, right on the back of his head. Then it's Mark Merrow off the top rope for the sunset flip. But Skip rolls out and clotheslines Merrow back down as we head into a commercial break. At this point, I'm thinking this match is going just a bit too long. Uh, back from break, Skip still in control with a gut-rich suplex for two. Skip continues a lengthy control segment, an unnecessarily lengthy control segment, mind you. 
Mero finally fires back and lands the old kiss that don't miss and his patented knee lift, but misses a running charge in the corner and goes flying over the top rope to the floor. Great bump, but once again, absolutely unnecessary. But we learn this was all a way for Mero to get his shit in, Steve, because Skip misses a plancha to the floor, splat, on his back as Mero simply sidesteps him without a care in the world. Immediately, Mero recovers from the bump to the floor and hits a somersault plancha of his own. Getting his shit in, Steve. Slingshot splashed back inside for a two count, and then it's a Frankensteiner off the top. In about 12 minutes, Mark Mero advances into the king of the ring. <laughs> Man, it was so, it dragged, and it felt like the comeback from Mero just kept on being delayed and delayed and delayed. And I'm with you, it could have been done half the time. Mero, I don't know, man. He comes to WWF and is completely the opposite of what he was. <laughs> yeah, I don't. to be bad at WCW. I mean, you're working DDP every night, and you look way better than this. And DDP wasn't even – I mean, initially he wasn't as good as he became later on. But, man, how do you do that? Like, how, how does it go? It's like a complete 180. Well, it's great he that he can – he's learning long. all these moves, and he can do all these moves, but – He's just doing them to show people that he can do them. They just don't make sense in the, in the context in which he does them. He takes this ridiculous bump to the floor just so he can position himself to move out of the way of a dive, and then he just no-sells the bump he just took so that he can do a flippy dive. It's, it, and it just goes he's, on he's and for, on. He's foreshadowing like 2022 wrestling. <laughs> That's all it is. Maybe everybody learned from watching Mark Marrow. Who knows? <laughs> I think so, the other thing, too, is maybe he, did, he's, he just hasn't been – in anything i know he had that short thing with with triple h but for the most part he's just having matches so when you don't have anything really going on why not go out there and kind of show him what you can do and do shit for the sake of doing it uh just try to get yourself over to see if you can get a a story developed in the back and get something going get you in a feud uh they just seems like they're taking forever to get to where they want to get to with him and by the time they do it's whatever momentum and everything that he's had, it's gone. It's unfortunate for him because he came in pretty hot from WCW. He was doing really good there. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so I, I, this, this match really bothered me. Apparently, Steve, I got a lot of notes here on this match. I wrote this match really dragged for me. They could have done this in half the time. Just felt like they were killing time out there to prolong the show. We knew going in the tag team guy wasn't beating a guy poised for the semi-main event slot on the show. I think both guys are capable of a good match, maybe not with each other after this one. Uh, I just felt this was sloppy all over the place, and a lot of it appeared to be Mero. The timing was off, miscommunication, Mero insisting to get his shit in for the sake of getting his shit in. Uh, we're deep into the tapings, and the crowd could care less about this match too, or the Yoko Owen match for that matter. They were really dead for that match as well. Uh, this should have been on Superstars, I wrote. Yuck. Also, I don't know the point of having Jake out there except to get him on the show because he added next to nothing on commentary. And that wasn't really Jake's fault. There was really nothing for him to say or do here. There's really no point for it. Yeah, he was, uh, I thought he was good on commentary, though. It would have been better if he had, you know, something to be talking about. Talking about, right. Tournament. No, he seemed but, perfectly fine. He gets the business. It's just he had yeah, nothing to like, talk about. He tried yeah, to put both guys over as young up-and-comers. I mean, he wasn't burying the match or the guys, no, but not. it just really had very little to talk about. It's just like, hey, let's yeah. get Jake on the show. 
Yeah, a lot of stuff too. He was talking about like in the ring what they were doing and why they were doing it. And he explained it in a really understanding way where you could actually understand as like a, a non wrestling fan, you could listen to him like, okay, that makes sense. Uh, he was good. I, I'm surprised nobody's done that, used him in that role back then, like, like continuously, maybe give him a shot like on a challenger or superstars or something to see how well he did for a little bit because he was pretty good. I enjoyed him. Yeah, well, you could still understand what he says. Yeah, his voice wasn't completely yeah. gone here by 96. Uh, I wrote, then LMAO. After Skip loses, we get a manager search P.O. box address on the screen. Vince needs your address for merchandise catalogs, damn it. But I just thought it was funny. Skip wrestles this match, does the job, and not going into the match when Skip's coming out for the introductions, but after he loses, we get a manager search P.O. box address for anybody who wants to manage Skip and the uh, Body Donna's tag team. We're off to the King of the Ring commercial, one of my favorites of all time. I love this one. Jerry Lawler chokes on chicken, and he dies. He thinks he's in heaven with the King, Elvis, Don King, King Tut, King Kong. Don King isn't even dead. He's not even dead in 2022. Uh, anywho, they all attack Lawler, and he realizes he's not in heaven at all, Steve. He's in hell. Jerry Lawler coming to the King of the Ring. It would have been a better commercial if um, it was like 93 and you had to go through four matches in one night instead of two, you know? Yeah. That would have uh, been hell. There's very few commercials I remember for pay-per-views, but I remember this one. It was just, it was very different. It was, it was something yeah. different and I, and I, I really liked it. And it kind of leads into the SummerSlam one. I think that won some kind of award, the SummerSlam one they do where the guys are all like running the SummerSlam and doing hurdles and things like that and whatever for the Olympics. The, and, the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the, whoever was coming up with these ideas here in 96, they were trying, you know. It was it definitely used a different level of budget here. I'll say that much yeah. To, yeah, <laughs> for, their, sure. for their advertisement. He's no king. Jerry Lawler, realizing he's in hell. I thought it was kind of funny. Jerry Lawler dies choking on chicken, and then, you know, many years later he dies on Raw because of all the fried chicken he ate. So That was like 10 years ago. Yeah, just mentioned that recently. A couple days ago, yeah. yeah. Crazy. Time flies. Yeah, we go on with the show, though. It's Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler in the ring, ready to interview the Ultimate Warrior. And the phoning in begins already for this Ultimate Warrior run, Steve, because the Warrior in all black face paint to save himself some time. At least he took the time to put his gear on, but he's wearing a baseball cap. Warrior Man here. Which we'll get into in a few minutes. Lawler knows the Warrior believes the King cost him his chance to be in the King of the Ring due to the double count out in the Goldust match. So Lawler has a peace offering. As a king, Lawler knows that you become a target. So what King did to the Warrior was a favor for UW. Warrior Man here. Lawler admires the illustrations in Warrior's comic book, but King himself is also an artist. Lawler offers a portrait he drew of the Warrior in an attempt to make right and get their match at King of the Ring canceled. Warrior responds. He says Lawler may be an artist, but the way Warrior Man sees it, Lawler is the biggest con artist there ever was. We get some typical Warrior mumbo jumbo before he tells Lawler at the King of the Ring he's going to kick his ass. Warrior Man here. Potty mouth Warrior Man. Running wild here in 96. This really blew my mind. He did this multiple times, these uh, potty mouth promos from the Warrior. I was like, what? This is not the Warrior I remember. Warrior, <laughs> cool, <laughs> Warrior turns to play to the crowd when Lawler takes the picture and smashes it over the back of the Warrior's head. Freeze. Break it down.
That may sound cool, Steve, but let's break it down a little first. First, this spot was the entire reason Warrior wore the baseball hat to the ring. In his mind, it would quote-unquote protect him from the blow of said picture. Second, if you go back and watch this, Lawler turns the picture towards himself, meaning he hits, he hits Warrior with the back of the picture, not the glass side. And even though it shatters, the entire ordeal looked absolutely cheap in my book, and it didn't really help matters that Warrior didn't sell it for even a second. If you're going to break a fucking picture over somebody's head, they at least need to sell it for a moment, which Warrior does not. Warrior no-sells the blow and presumably chases Lawler backstage. End segment. My God. (laughs) I don't even know what to say to this. It's terrible. See an ultimate warrior in all black face being like, he was, he seems like he was done. And it's amazing to me that you pay the ultimate warrior, whatever it is that it costs you to pay him to come in and feud with guys like Goldust and Jerry Lawler. Like, is that really what you paid the ultimate warrior for? I mean, if that's what you wanted to waste your money on, you should have never brought him back in the first place. I'm not saying put him in the main event or whatever, but this stuff is not going to work. Should have had a heel already established, ready to go. That was actually a wrestler, not a commentary guy. Goldust is, I don't think he's there yet. He's not there yet on Warriors level, if he ever was. Right, and the plan uh, the plan on the on the side while uh, Warrior was you know doing this on TV, Warrior was supposed to be, fe- well, not feuding. I, I shouldn't say feuding. Warrior was supposed to be, beating vader on the house shows uh but warrior had a uh, shoulder injury and and i think we'll talk about it more next week on next episode of monday warfare but uh warrior really wasn't you know he was doing like uh, quick squashes over vader because warrior didn't feel like working because his shoulder hurt and we'll talk a lot more actually i have a little piece about that next week for monday warfare but yeah that's that's where we're at with the warrior already he's coming out and he worked earlier on the show that's why he's even bothered to get into his gear we might have seen warrior out here and and you know, in a, in a shirt and, and some and jeans or something, had had he not wrestled earlier. But we get the black yeah. face paint, the baseball cap, Warrior Man, Warrior Man here, uh, out there in full that's the force. Other thing too. That's the other thing too. Like if you have a four week taping and you have a guy on there that's supposed to be on there maybe two or three weeks, uh, if you do face paint like he does, where it's different every single time, like dude, third time, I'm like, you know what, screw this shit, I'm just getting hit with a mirror, you know, or a picture frame. Like who cares? <laughs> I kind of see it. I I kind of understand that. That's a lot of painting in a, in one night to get a different design or whatever. You don't want to go out there with the same look two weeks in a row because then you kind of give it away that it's taped. So, what do you do? Yeah, I'm not so paying attention black. that hard week to week. If, oh, Warrior had that <laughs> oh, same paint last week. But you know, maybe you know, you some of the stuff that they do that we've talked about on the grenade and elsewhere, what they do just to make it look like it's not taped. Right. I'm not saying I would care. I don't give a shit. I'm just saying Vince or somebody probably cares enough to say, hey, you can't wear the same face paint twice. That's going to give it away. You know, somebody may care enough to think about that. I, I highly doubt that. I'm sure it was just a time thing. I'm sure he was like, eh, I'm not doing this again. Let's just black it up. And yeah. uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise, the peacock hasn't, uh, you know, blurred, you know, edited this uh, out for blackface at this point. But the nonsense. Oh, they've, they've, come uh, on. Well, <laughs> just saying. Anywho, so Warrior completely no-sells the shot, chases Lawler away. Boy, that really builds up the pay-per-view big time for Warrior and Lawler. But we go on with Raw, and it's The Undertaker with Paul Bear in his corner, taking on the British Bulldog with Jim Cornette, Diana Smith, and Owen Hart in his corner. I don't know how they allow all of this. We see WWF champion Shawn Michaels via satellite. 
He joins in studio to talk his rematch with the British Bulldog at King of the Ring, the Bulldog getting another title shot at the pay-per-view, while Jim Cornette joins commentary. Remember the injury lawsuit Clarence Mason filed against Gorilla Monsoon and the WWF? Well, apparently Cornette says it has been dropped in exchange for Cornette being able to choose the referee for the upcoming rematch between HBK and the Bulldog at the pay-per-view. Sean, on the other side, does not look pleased. He sells it like he is screwed, leaving his chances of retaining in doubt. So Sean Michaels just happens to call in or, or phone in or a satellite in, I suppose, during this match, and he finds out this way right here on Raw that uh, Jim Cornette randomly gets to pick the referee for the upcoming uh, rematch with the Bulldog at King of the Ring. Well, Gorilla should keep his hands to himself. <laughs> I thought that was, it was a creative way to get out of the shit that they were trying to do with that lawsuit in the first place. We said they just didn't completely ignore it and move on like nothing happened. They actually came up with a reason to get out of it. So kudos to them for that. But it is what it is. And I did mention we had a match going on in the ring. It was The Undertaker and Davey Boy Smith. Taker dominates early and Davey's facials sell it great. Before the Bulldog powders out of the ring, Taker continues to dominate with old school. But the dead man eventually runs into a bulldog back elbow and Davy Boy with a delayed suplex on the Undertaker. But the dead man sits up. Bulldog with a sloppy looking power slam for two as we head into a commercial break and back from break. Bulldog with a long chin lock on the Undertaker as Taker tries to come back but eats a swinging neckbreaker. Don't see that too often for the Bulldog. And another long chin lock as Taker finally escapes with a back suplex and both men. Back up to their feet, Bulldog slides out of a tombstone attempt, but Taker slides out of the running power slam as well. Both men trading blows, which Taker wins, but we head into a second commercial break during this match, at which time we get the WWF 900 Superstar line, and I always loved how they use Lex Luger's WCW theme music. Always got a kick out of that. I'll play it next week on Monday Warfare, let you guys hear it for yourself. But right now, we continue on with this match back from break. A mistimed Taker clothesline. Remember Taker's flying clothesline, guys? Completely whiffs on it. It just uh, didn't look good at all. Probably the worst Taker clothesline of all time. But we do see the choke slam, And then the Undertaker clotheslines the Bulldog out of the ring and onto the floor. Davy Boy pulls the Undertaker outside, but Taker sends Smith into the steel steps. Then he rolls the Bulldog back inside, but as the Undertaker tries to re-enter, he can't. The camera zooms in on his feet. It's Mankind from under the ring holding the Undertaker by his ankle. And the Undertaker gets counted out. The British Bulldog wins in about 14 minutes of, well, I guess you could call it action. Post-match sees the Undertaker <laughs> yank Mankind out from under the ring and attack. But Bulldog assists Mankind in a double team until Cornette leaves commentary to tell Davy Boy to leave the ring. Even Cornette doesn't trust Mankind. Mankind with a pile driver on The Undertaker to close the show as officials rush to the ring. I wrote, the first five minutes of the match, not so bad. Then it slowed down after the commercial break, and the crowd was uh, actually better here in this match, I thought. Uh, but they could have easily done without the chinlock spots. But overall, this was honestly better than I anticipated. Uh, still not, not too great. Yeah, this was uh, very boring. Like you said, long long is not even a good enough word to describe how long and boring those chin locks were because they were like you did one and then you did one or two moves and you was right back to it. So it felt like one long extended chin lock for two or three minutes, maybe even four. 
And it was kind of you know it's it's funny watching Davy Boy. You know when he works Brett and he works Sean and he works guys like of that caliber. Davy Boy keeps up with them. He has a good match with them. Whenever he works these guys like Diesel and the Undertaker, it's almost like Smith doesn't know what to do and he goes to these rest holds. And and this is what we get. He's smaller than those guys, so you know when when he's fighting Brett and Sean, he's the big guy keeping up with the little guy. Well, now he's the medium sized guy trying to do something against the big guy and he like you said he looks lost he what's funny is though he had good matches with vader and wcw like really good matches yeah um in 93 so he could definitely do it it's just for whatever reason he doesn't want to um now this this match was you know you you, you see it on paper it's like, oh take her and bulldog that should be good that should be really good and then you watch it and it's like man whoo yeah, and they did they did their best to try to get two matches over for the King of the Ring at the same time. Sean learns that Jim Cornette's going to be picking the referee, so Sean's involved in this match technically. Davy Boy Smith is out there, he's challenging Sean for the belt, so he gets a win, even if it's hokey, and by a count out, Davy Boy Smith still defeats the Undertaker of all people, and it's all because of mankind who is feuding with the Undertaker. And in fact, the Meltz reports after the show, Mankind, after that pile driver we saw, puts the mandible claw on the Undertaker. But something different happens here that we don't normally see on TV. The Undertaker escapes the Mandible Claw and makes his own comeback with a choke slam, running Mankind off to send the crowd home happy, at least for this segment of the show. And speaking of segments, Steve, segment of the night, and I wrote, this wasn't a good show overall. Not really bad, but just kind of dragged at points. Uh, still, they managed to further a lot of the stories, as I just mentioned, leading into the pay-per-view. Uh, by default, um, I think I have to go with the main event as the best segment of the night. I kind of had the same sort of summer summarization. Um, you know, a lot, there's not a lot to choose from here. I thought Skip and Merrill, they were trying. It just wasn't working. Uh, Skip didn't seem interested in the match, and Merrill was sloppy. Taker and Bulldog was pretty slow and boring with a lot of rest holds. So, to me, both long matches were not very good at best, but they weren't horrible. Uh, Law and Warrior was just too, not enough time, too short to mount to anything worth the damn, especially with Warrior no selling. I went with Merrill and Skip. Not be, not because it was anything good, just because of some of the moves that both guys were trying to do. They were cool to see, even though they didn't have any meaning behind them. Some of it was just creative, and once they got a little bit of things going, it felt better. It looked better, but Undertaker and Bulldog was just too boring for me. No, I could see, I I could see it either way, and you know, while you were just talking about that, I was thinking about Candido, and I think at this point he'd already given up. I mean, I forgot how good he was in Smoky Mountain by this point. I'm like, what happened to this guy? Because I was so excited when I saw him pop up on the screen in 95, but then I saw the gimmick they were doing with him when they were knocking yeah. on the screen and trying to get you in shape, and I go, what the hell are they doing with him? I feel like by this point, he's like, he, he probably went back to their mirror, was like, I want to do this, and this, and this, and why? It's going to be wild, man. And, and and Candido was probably like, whatever you want to do, man. Whatever you want to do. I, I feel like that's what, what that match was. Yeah, dude, when you're jobbing to Barry Horowitz, <laughs> you're, you're probably mentally checked out and just count down the days that you're, you're getting out of there to probably get to something better. And he does. Yeah, my, my God, I think he was there uh, 90 days before he was jobbing to Barry Horowitz. So, I mean. Yeah, so. Uh, what a talent, though, like you said. Very, very underrated. All right, it's on to WCW. and WCW news, we don't have a lot of it, but we have uh, just a few tidbits here. And the first one, this is a fun one. There is heat with Pierre Ouellette and Jacques Rougeau, formerly the Quebecers, soon to be the amazing French Canadians who are scheduled to start in July. Imagine that, Steve. Jacques Rougeau has heat, and he hasn't even started with the company yet. <laughs> Clutch. No surprise there. 
Apparently, the Quebecers are upset because they believe WCW hasn't been giving them the support and agreeing to do a large stadium show in Montreal. WCW doesn't want to take the risk of running a 60,000-seat building in a market they have no history in. Rougeau has been wanting to do a show at the stadium ever since he sold out the forum for his retirement back in 1994, and the WWF nixing doing a show at the stadium was the prime reason for his split with the WWF. So Jacques Rougeau already uh, causing issues here, and he hasn't even debuted. Is there a forum in Montreal? Or? Yes, yeah, the Montreal Forum, yeah. Okay. That's uh, like their, that's like their arena. He's that over in Montreal? Yeah, man, he worked Hogan in a match, remember, WCW. Hogan let him pin him? Yeah. Those French Canadians, man. <laughs> amazing. French they Canadian. are amazing. They deserve that title. Uh, WCW has apparently expressed interest in the Scott Levy, Raven, in ECW to join forces with DDP. Apparently, that was the reason Paige went to a recent ECW arena show. That would have been interesting to see, to talk to Levy into coming to WCW back in the summer of 96, DDP in the arena. I'd like to have seen that. If oh, you're boy. wondering, <laughs> If you're wondering how Scott Steiner looks the way he does, it's because he has great genetics, Steve says to Meltz. Also, guys who haven't signed contracts, which the Steiners haven't, don't get tested. Uh-huh. Makes sense. <laughs> WCW Saturday night taping was on June 5th. It saw Fire and Ice do another double count out with the Steiners. That'll set up a pay-per-view must-be-a-winner tag team match at the Great American Bash. And we kick things off here with WCW Monday Nitro June 10th live in Wheeling, West Virginia in front of 3,500 fans. It's Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco with Hour 1 as they do a heavy sell for Hour 2 and Flair and Arn Anderson taking on the team of the Renegade and a newcomer by the name of Desperado Joe Gomez. I was like, man, that guy sounds cool. When I first watched yeah. this Nitro way back in 96, I couldn't wait to see who this guy was. Boy, was I disappointed. <laughs> and, and even though this invasion thing is a shoot, brother, we go back to last week's Scott Hall sting confrontation. We see the clip of last week's Scott Hall invading WCW to close the show. Scott Hall flicks the toothpick, but Sting shoves him right back. Hall promises a big surprise next week, Mang, which is now this week. And apparently, even though he's warned WCW with a week's advance notice, they act as if security can do nothing about it. So we await Scott Hall's big surprise this week on Monday Nitro. How was I such a fool? As a teenager, buying into this is a, a shoot. You didn't buy into it? I did. I said, how was I such a fool? They're, they're, they're replaying <laughs> video footage. I guess I was making excuses. Yeah. Well, they had to. They couldn't, they couldn't cover it up. Yeah. And it's off to the ring. It's Scott Steiner taking on Booker T one-on-one. WCW still making use of the WCW Slam Jam Steinerized theme here in 96. Solid feeling out process to begin by both guys. Scotty tries for a German and a belly-to-belly suplex early on with excellent believable blocks by Booker T. Booker counters out of a backside with a backflip over Scott, but T misses his patented Savak kick, and Scott launches him in the air with a double underhook powerbomb. About seven feet in the air goes Booker T with that double underhook powerbomb, and a Steiner line sends Booker over the top rope and out to the floor, but back inside, Booker T chest first into the corner. Scott runs face first into a back kick, though, from Booker T. Really awesome stuff here. And a scissor kick to the back of Steiner's head, and a top rope reverse body block by Booker T. Really going out, pulling out all the stops here on Nitro is Booker, and he gets a two count here. Scotty, though, counters with an inverted DDT for the comeback, and a, which is also the future Scorpion death drop, by the way. 
Booker, though, manages to reverse a whip in the corner, but runs into a Steiner boot and the old patented rolling belly-to-belly from Steiner. Scotty calls for the Frankensteiner, but Booker holds onto the ropes and Scott goes down on the back of his head. Booker then lands the jumping scissor kick to the face for yet another near fall, and then it's the side slam as Booker T goes up top for a top rope splash, and boy does he get some height. But Booker misses the splash, and Scotty capitalizes with an overhead belly-to-belly. Scott Steiner picks up the win in 5 minutes and 52 seconds. I wrote, excellent TV match, back and forth, felt like 15 minutes crammed into 5 or 6 here. This would have been an amazing Given more time, Booker T was on the way up. Scott Steiner still mobile here. In 1996, it was clear Steiner liked Booker because of the great cooperation and giving Booker all those high spots and then selling them too. Scott even beating Booker with a belly-to-belly instead of burying him with his finisher. All around, good stuff. It left me wanting more. I love this match. Yeah, it's really good. It's so crazy if you watch these. I think I watched Raw first and then Nitro. You watch this match, and it's like after following Raw, and you just go straight into this. If you see this, it's like, man, <laughs> this would have been the segment of the night on Raw, hands down. This it's is the a, opener for Nitro. Uh, these programs are night and day from one another right now. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, whoo. Yeah, like you said, night and day is the perfect way to summarize it. And we're getting more of these commercial bumpers, which I love, too. Uh, in this particular commercial bumper, we get a promo from Arn Anderson talking about their tag team match this uh, tonight here on Nitro. And Jimmy Hart also does a quick 10-second promo on the WCW champion, the Giant, defending against Scott Norton later here in the show. I love these bumper promos because you're not really wasting time on TV bringing these guys out and having them talk, which you will anyway. But you know what I mean. And, and they do that throughout the show. In fact, they do it uh, quite often with people that don't deserve more than 10 seconds. Uh, a lot of times. So it's a really good uh, idea to use these uh, commercial bumpers to promote upcoming matches later in the show. Yeah, I noticed that too. They really hit them hard this this episode and they're very good. You know, sometimes they have people talking. Sometimes they just show the, like you said, the bumper with the two guys on there. It, it's kind of like, you don't need to know everything that's going to happen on the show, you know, ahead of time, just let it breathe a little bit, but right. getting some ideas of what matches you're going to see and who's going to be on the show is, uh, is awesome. Yeah, uh, and, I, and, I, and I love the I love these even these ten second promos from some of the guys that may not normally even get uh, promo time because at least the match feels like something. It, it may, maybe it doesn't have a backstory, but at least somebody has some comment they're making about the match, so it adds something to the upcoming matches. Yeah, and if the guys take advantage of it properly, you know, you can get some character out there, maybe show some personality, and get yourself over. It's ten seconds, but it's. Every second of TV matters, so take advantage, and some people do. So, yeah, very well done. Excellent shit by Bischoff there. And we come back from the break. Mean Gene Oakland standing in the aisle to interview Scott Steiner. Rick clearly not here this week, not really sure why, but we do learn on TV that it will be the Steiners versus Fire and Ice that Scott Norton and Ice train at the bash, and there must be a winner this time as, oh, here it goes. Deborah McMichael interrupts the promo. She's so sorry but she needs to speak to Mean Gene right now. So Deborah McMichael, bangs and all, essentially dismisses Scott Steiner from the interview because she needs to talk to Mean Gene on camera right now. Talk about a natural heel, Deborah McMichael. Scotty obliges and walks off to leave Deborah and Gene to chat. Deborah wants Mean Gene, who must have some special powers behind the 900 hotline, to get a hold of Flair and Anderson for a meeting to have them call off their match at the bash against her husband, Steve McMichael and Kevin green, because Deborah fears for what Mongo and green will do to the horsemen. 
not to mention the wild and untamed macho man in their corner. Deborah feels like this is all her fault, poor girl. Mean Gene assures her it's not. Ric Flair has a reputation, ha! He's infuriated, Mongo, not infuriated, infuriated, says Mean Gene. Gene says he will try and get Flair and Anderson and Coach Heenan to have a discussion later tonight on Nitro. My thoughts, Steve? It took Deborah a while to get to her point, and she did stutter early trying to remember when the pay-per-view was, this Sunday. But in general, she seemed to understand what to do, and even though it wasn't very good, it wasn't actually embarrassing. She got her points across, as lame as it was, and she didn't repeat herself. This wasn't very good, but the shit they gave her to work with sucked to begin with. That's no lie. You can see the potential there that she has, though. She's very believable, especially at the beginning, you know, when she was concerned for her husband or concerned for what her husband's going to do and, and things like that. It's a little cheesy and corny, but she, you could tell that she's good. And I think reading, I've, I've read the observers from 96, 97, and when she really gets going here in the next couple of months, Meltzer gives her a lot of praise. Uh, she does an excellent job and she's, she's really good at what she does. She, she showed a little promise here. Yeah. You can tell, you can tell at the very sure. least that she took, the promo seriously she understood what was at stake here and uh, they they technically no pun intended gave her the ball and she ran with it i don't think it was all that great but what if they gave her bullet points or a script or whatever they did you can tell she memorized it and she made sure to hit every point so uh, i i guess good job even though i think the entire thing was just shitty writing yeah i agree not very creative at all like you're scared for what your husband's going to do. So you're terrified. Like that, that doesn't make much sense. It's a different kind of scared than what she was portraying, what she was scared of. Right. We roll on with diamond Dallas page and the ring, the Lord of the ring. Now DDP one battle bowl taken on Jimmy powers. So they took away DDP's title shot at the bash, but they let him keep that stupid fucking ring. Sounds fair. DDP taking on Jimmy powers. You heard me right. Powers making his WCW debut gets his first ever ring entrance that doesn't involve crank it up playing over the speakers powers twice the size he ever was in the WWF nearing Scott Steiner like proportions here, Steve. Yeah, he's massive and he wears the singlet too. And it really, really kind of emphasizes how big he's gotten compared to young stallion days. Jesus, he must not have a contract either. And as I just mentioned a little bit ago, remember originally the Lord of the ring was to meet the giant for the WCW title at the great American bash, but they backed themselves into a corner when they went with DDP as Lord of the ring. And thus they randomly changed the story, pointing out the shady way DDP won the battle Royal and thus negated his title shot, which should have prompted a barbarian versus DDP match. You would think the winner gets the title shot, obviously DDP (laughs) beating barbarian. You would think that would make sense. But instead, they just give it to Lex Luger, and DDP gets Marcus Bagwell. Probably for the best. I think originally it was supposed to be DDP and the Booty Man, but uh, Booty Man may be injured or something like that, which I'm not going to complain, but uh, I think we've seen the end of the Booty Man character at this point. So DDP is scheduled to wrestle Marcus Bagwell at the Great American Bash, and back to the match with Jimmy Powers. We see cheap tricks early on by DDP, which upsets Jimmy Powers. DDP begs off, allowing Powers a schoolboy for two. But DDP counters, and some of the crowd, actually, it was very shocking. I was surprised here by mid-96. Some of the crowd actually cheering for DDP as we see a gut-rich gut buster for a two-count on Powers. Page, though, runs into a Jimmy Powers boot in the corner, and it's Powers time. 
for the big comeback and a near fall off the patented knee lift. Yes, even Jimmy Powers had a patented move. Powers, though, runs into a back elbow and eats the diamond cutter. Bang! DDP getting the win. Four minutes and three seconds. Yeah, I'm just going to talk about the part where you talk about the Lord of the Ring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're basically telling you we didn't give a shit about that pay-per-view, and you shouldn't either. That's what they're telling you. Yeah, it's like a reboot of the story. It's like, yeah, yeah, that didn't happen. I mean, it happened because he's got a ring, but it didn't happen. And that was the end of Slamboree. I don't think we... Well, there's more. There's more Slamborees, but (laughs) the Battle Bowl ring and all that stuff is done. No more of that stuff. (laughs) You can't... Yeah, you can't come back from this. No, definitely Uh, not. It's completely useless. But yeah, you know, it's... uh, I I did pick up on those cheers, though. When you see a cool move, like that that gut wrench powerbomb type deal, that was really cool looking. People are going to pop or something like that, especially when you don't see it too often. Yeah, the slow turn and Paige is still, even though he's he's not wrestling guys like Mark Merrill and stuff, he's still improving. You can see he's still putting in the work to get better and better and better. And uh, he's starting to hit his stride even more. Kudos to him. He's done it all in wrestling leading up to this. And he said, you know what, I'm just going to be a wrestler. And he's doing pretty damn good at it. So uh, not only are we getting commercial bumper promos uh, a lot throughout this Nitro, we're also seeing a lot of uh, videos, video packages uh, for the feuds and things like that leading into the pay-per-view. Uh, imagine that. And here we get a Kevin Sullivan versus Chris Benoit feud video. And you didn't get this a lot back then in WCW, especially on TV, hyping the pay-per-view. But with Sullivan as Booker, he made sure to take care of business here for himself. We even see the replay of Sullivan versus Brian Pillman in the strap match. Because remember, at this point, There was thought Pillman would be back with the company. Sullivan thinks Benoit is a serpent within the horsemen, and Arn says the truth will come out at the Great American Bash. It's going to be Sullivan versus Benoit. Falls count anywhere. Looking forward to that. As we go on, we get a Conan music video. No, not a rap video, just a Conan music video. Uh, We see some action with Conan when he was still fairly entertaining in the ring, and then it's off to Mean Gene Okerlund as he interviews Conan, who will defend his U.S. heavyweight title at the Bash against the South American legend, El Gato, Steve. El Gato, a.k.a. Pat Tanaka. Very nice. Is South- that actually, I, can't, I can't even remember that. Does that match even happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. South American legend, Pat Tanaka and a uh, tiger mask of sorts. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Should be pretty fun. We roll on. Larry Zabisco on commentary. Oh, Larry, Larry, Larry. Cancel culture, Larry. Uh, I, good, I loved it. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a snowflake. No, 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 I'm no, just no, saying no. cancel culture. Saying Larry no. here. <laughs> I have the same note you have, but I'm just saying, uh, I thought Larry was good on commentary back in the day. And now that I've gone back and kind of listened to him, he says the, the, the human game of chess, like 30 oh, times a show. If you yeah, play a absolutely. drinking game of that, you'd be, you'd be in a morgue somewhere. <laughs> um, my God, like, I thought it was so cool as a kid that human game of chess. But man, that's that's like next level thinking. I like that. And now that I'm older, and it's like, man, <laughs> dude switches like a he does he does like a reverse on a move or something, and it's like the human game of chess inside that ring. And it's like, really, you know, like, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of opposite on on Zabisco's commentary and the fact that when this was happening live, I kind of tuned him out. I never paid attention to him. He just, I, you know, you, you know how Larry talked. It just sounded kind of boring. If you actually paid attention to what he said, it was good. Mm-hmm. But I didn't pay attention to that as a teenager. I didn't really give a shit. So, you know, I was just watching the show and I was like, <laughs> oh, Larry Zabisco's on this hour. And I, I, and I didn't mind Larry, you know, when he wrestled, even if he did stall more than, you know, Iron Mike Sharp and Randy Savage combined back, you know, back in their uh, heydays. Savage was a hell of a staller in Memphis, guys. Um, but 
Zabisco, yeah, I just I tuned him out back in back in this era, era 1990s. But um, now that when I go back for the last 15 years, when I when I listen, I I love I can't wait. I'm like, oh, Larry's on on commentary. Can't wait to hear this. But uh, speaking of Larry on commentary, I remember when uh, he went in the Hall of Fame and you was mentioning how you was disappointed in his speech because it oh, wasn't. Yeah. Well, up to the par of what you felt his commentary was. No, it, it wasn't. To it, was. it wasn't good. And, and Larry admitted he he'd left his uh, speech at home, so oh, that's sucks. that's why we got what we got there, and, and that is unfortunate. But uh, Larry Zabisco here on commentary on Nitro questions the legacy and the word legendary when it comes to Mexicans and South Americans. Larry thinks every contender should have a green card. I wrote, "Wow." It doesn't end there, because as we get going in the next match, the announcers also discuss the upcoming Flair and Arn versus Mongo and Kevin Green match. And Zabisco says that football players marry blondes because they have no brains. I wrote, woof, Larry Zabisco. Just uh, yeah. telling it like, uh, like it is in his uh, Larry land anyway. <laughs> I put he's, he's dropping some heat. That would get him canceled immediately today. <laughs> All of this within a matter of like two minutes, by the way. Yes, yeah, he would have been on Nitro this week and off TV for the rest of his. And you can always, you can always afterwards. tell when it's not even appropriate for the time because Tony Schiavone just cuts him right off. Like, oh God, Larry! I, even back in '96, <laughs> the, the green card stuff specifically. Tony Schiavone was yes. like, oh God, let's let's pivot. Especially with you know Bischoff doing everything he's doing to bring in the cruiserweights and stuff. Like those guys are there. Eddie and and people like that. So why well, I'm sure Larry's. Larry, I'm sure I'm sure once the talent gets here and we start seeing these matches, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining Larry's uh, take on things will change. Yeah, pray to God, jeez. <laughs> so here's an interesting match. We have Sting versus Ming Haku. Uh, we've seen this quite a few times in WCW. We've even seen it on some pay per views over the years. But Sting readies for a match with Lord Stephen Regal at the Great American Bash pay per view after being backhanded and being called Sunshine. On WCW main event of all television programs, Sting misses a dropkick early on and Ming takes over, but Sting with a surprise crossbody right back at Ming with a two count and then a series of clotheslines. Sting then with a bulldog, but Ming comes back with an inside cradle. How many times have you seen Haku bust out the inside cradle, especially as Ming here? Pretty cool stuff. Only gets a two count. Ming with a shoulder breaker and he goes to the top rope, but he gets crotched across that top rope, and Ming falls off the ropes onto his face in the ring, where Sting applies the scorpion deadlock, doesn't even roll him over to his back to put it on right. He just kind of crosses Ming's legs and picks him up, holding his uh, boots, uh, grasping at his boots, and Ming supposedly submits in three minutes and seven seconds. I wrote, wow, didn't see that coming. Ming jobs by submission in three minutes. I wrote, very sloppy finish. Sting holding the move by grasping at Ming's boots to start. It was unnecessary to bury Ming like this to get Sting ready for Regal. A, Sting doesn't need readying. He's Sting. And B, the time this match was given was pathetic for a two-hour episode of TV. And there's a hundred guys on the roster to choose from. Why Ming here? This match was essentially nothing because these guys were given three minutes. They basically did a couple of moves and then took it home disappointed and silly booking yeah it was it was rough i know they had the match at the great america not the great bash at the beach 95 outside for the u.s title and a year later <laughs> they're on nitro around the same time and ming's job in three minutes pretty incredible to think about but i'm with you it, it, there's a hundred guys on there Just let sting beat anybody he doesn't need anybody to get ready for regal regal slapped him 
He's going to get his revenge, and people are going to pay to see it because it's Sting. He doesn't need a tune-up match. Yeah, and Regal's um, the one that needs the build here, and, and we'll see that as the show progresses, but Regal yeah. needs the build here. Sting needs nothing, and if he's going to beat Haku, why not with the uh, top rope crossbody? We see, we've seen Sting use that time and time again when they don't want to job the guy out by submission. I'm not saying Ming, who's a really good guy by all accounts when, he, when you don't piss him off, he, he might have told Sting, hey, man, you know, put your finisher on me. I, he's that kind of guy. We, we've seen Haku do a thousand jobs in the WWF, so that's not an issue with him. Uh, he's no, there to no. he's there to make you know make the paycheck, but it just seemed unnecessary. Three minutes in and out by submission, Sting over Ming, just really weird. And it won't end there. But before we get to the next match, or actually the next promo, we get a commercial bumper with Squire David Taylor, who we never hear from, talking about his upcoming match with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Also, we hear from Lord Stephen Regal, looking forward to beating more Americans, including Sting, at the pay per view. Back from break, it's me and Gene Okerlund in the hallway. Talking to Bobby the Brain Heenan. Backstage, Mean Gene finally catches up with Heenan, but Deborah McMichael immediately confronts Bobby. I wrote, what was the point of Deborah asking Gene to do it if she's going to do it herself? Deborah confronts Heenan and demands to speak to Ric Flair. Heenan claims she's been talking to Flair every night all week, which Deborah denies. Heenan allows Deborah into the heel locker room, but slams the door on Gene and the cameraman. Seconds later, Gene opens the door. As Deborah comes running out, presumably attacked by woman, randomly, Renegade and Joe Gomez, this guy we'd never seen before, Desperado Joe Gomez, just happened to be walking down the hallway as Deborah runs out of the locker room. And as they try to check on Deborah, Ric Flair and Arn Anderson attack their opponents for tonight, Renegade and Joe Gomez. Flair with a figure four on the Renegade backstage, not going to lie, it was kind of funny, while Arn lays out Joe Gomez, and then it's Arn. Joining Ric Flair and working over the knee of the Renegade, I wrote, poor Renegade, just everything they do to him on TV. And then you think about, you know, his, you know, what happens with them. You have to wonder, did all of this like weigh on his mind? I mean, terrible, terrible booking. Like, uh, like what did he do to Kevin Sullivan for all of this uh, booking? (laughs) Poor Renegade here. He probably took it out on Renegade what he wanted to do to Hogan. (laughs) <laughs> well, he did bring him in but, for Hogan, so yeah, that, that could. That yeah, could I be mean, it. like Hogan ain't ever gonna let me do any of this stuff, so I'm gonna take it out on Renegade. He's gonna take everything I want to do to Hogan. So interestingly enough, they knock out Joe Gomez. We really don't even see him on camera. He's just laying knocked out, face down, so we really don't even see him. And then they take out most of their aggression on poor Renegade beating on his bad leg, his bum leg, thanks to Ric Flair's figure four in the backstage area. The Horsemen uh, apparently put out their opponents for later tonight. Uh, the whole segment, Steve, it felt super rushed from point A to point B. I think did a whole lot in like a, a 90 second segment here. Yeah, it was very rushed. Sloppy Heenan getting his one liners in when he's about, when they're just walking into a locker room. He still gets a one liner in, of course. So uh, I think it makes a lot more sense once after Great American Bash happens. This could have been a whole setup in the first place, uh, you know, with the way what happens at the Bash with Deborah right. and, you know, the horsemen and everything. So. You know, if you think about it in that realm, it makes right. sense, but it does feel definitely rushed. Yeah, within 90 seconds, Deborah wants to talk to Heenan. They go into the locker room. She comes running out. The heels come out. They beat down their opponents for later. Just all of it. It just, it was discombobulated for me. Like, what were these guys doing just walking by? The, they're only, the only people backstage were the guys in that locker room, Mean Gene, and then Joe Gomez and Renegade just happened to be walking by. That was it. Couldn't Gene, like, console Deborah after what happened in the locker room? Why did you... Renegade and 
Gomez, like, if you're going to well, do just that, to be there. Shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't they be heading to the ring for their match? So shouldn't the, the horsemen be out next instead of... I don't know. Their, their match was an hour two, so that, I don't think they were uh, wrestling it. So you just you just happen to walk by the horseman's locker that's right. room Absolutely. before your match. Like that's kind of stupid because you can get your ass kicked in the back. Clearly, yeah. so stay we, won't, we won't be seeing room. them again tonight. And that is the Renegade and Joe Gomez. Anyway, we'll have to wait until a later date to see the Desperado make his WCW debut. As we go back to the ring, it's Hacksaw Jim Duggan taking on Squire David Taylor with Jeeves in his corner. We get a replay from a couple of weeks ago that shows Dave Taylor recently aiding Steve Regal. Their defeat over Hacksaw on Nitro. So at least there's some type of continuity here uh, for once for the mid-card guys. Too bad it's uh, the wrong mid-card guys. And for no reason, David Taylor shoves poor Jeeves as they, coming do- as they come down the ramp, making their way to the ring. We get a minute of Jim Duggan doing his shtick before Dave Taylor counters a backdrop with a knee lift. Taylor misses a reverse body block and eats the three-point stance 90 seconds into the match. But Taylor's foot is on the ropes, so the match will continue. Dave Taylor barely has time to take over before he dodges a Duggan charge into the corner. Taylor thinks Hacksaw hit the corner, but Duggan stops short and begins wrapping his fist with tape. I wrote, ugh. Boom! Duggan nails Taylor with the tape fist and picks up the win in 2 minutes and 24 seconds. And the replay shows Hacksaw wrapping tape all over his hand, but barely on his knuckles. I wrote, double ugh because we needed this to fill time. We did. Man, Duggan's so far done at this point. Yeah. I, Mid-South. And he's, is, uh, I don't know how he stays for years to come. Mid-South is so far away. <laughs> you ain't shitting. <laughs> My goodness. My goodness. Oh, at this point, 1993 WWF is so far away. My goodness. just ugh, He just looks terrible in there. It doesn't even look realistic, anything he does. So lazy. Let's just wrap up. It's, isn't that illegal? Like, yeah, they right in front of the referee this time. So you have a gimmick match of a tape fist match, but you're going to completely neuter that by having Duggan tape his fist every time to win matches. Well, I suppose at the end it. of the day, he could argue that, hey, it, it was barely covering my knuckles because I did a terrible job of rapping. <laughs> Definitely can do that. Oh, jeez. Show continues Duggan. on. Another bumper. This time it's cruiserweight champion dean malenko and ray mysterio video we get a video of both guys uh, intertwined we see dean malenko doing a lot of good stuff here in wcw ray mysterio it looks like they took one match and tried to pick a few things out of it dean scheduled to defend the cruiser title versus the debuting ray mysterio jr at the great american bash uh, and i don't know if you caught this but uh, at the b- bottom of the screen even though they were selling this for the great american bash they're showing clips of Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio in action from various weeks and months ago. And the Chiron at the bottom reads two weeks ago because WCW. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. No. Wow. Locker room time yet again. Mean Gene Okerlund interviewing Jimmy Hart and biker Big Bubba. Uh, Bubba holding a piece of uh, locks of John Tenta's hair, which Bubba cut a few weeks back. He's not a shark. He's not a fish. He's a man. I'm not the shark. I'm not a fish, said John Tenta. Bubba twirls the scissors almost as good as a nightstick here, Steve. Tenta might be a man, but Bubba thinks he's half a man. In fact, Bubba says by the Great American Bash, Tenta won't be a man. He won't be a shark. He'll be a beached whale, if you believe that. You talk about Hacksaw Jim Duggan coming a long way. We've come a long way from the Big Boss Man and Earthquake as well. Yes, we absolutely have, and it's a shame. 
Mean Gene not done yet. Another interview this time in the Iowa. Mean Gene all over the place here. They got him running back and forth, interviewing Scott Norton in the Iowa way, headed to the ring last week. The Giant chokeslam Norton not once but twice after the Giant put away Ice Train, Norton's partner. Norton is back this week, he says, after two chokeslams. He's not scared of the Giant. As the countdown clock appears on the screen for hour two, we get a shot of the neon fans at ringside, those famous neon fans that came to a lot of WWF events, some WCW as well. Uh, they, they, they seem to be centered around Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, here in West Virginia. Uh, I caught them at ringside here, so I had to bring them up. As hour two begins with Eric Bischoff and Bobby the Brain Heenan, we go to the ring. WCW. I just got to make a quick comment here. Yeah. It's so crazy, the hype of the second hour of TV. It's so normal and accustomed now, like to be two hours for wrestling. But back then, man, they did pyro. They had the countdown with the dynamite stick in the lower left corner. The commentary was like blowing it up like it was the greatest thing to ever happen <laughs> to wrestling. And it's like, it's so crazy to look back on it now and think of like the hype that that second hour got. It was, yeah, and it was just, it, it was just hour two. It. Yeah, it was just hour two. Yeah. I mean, it was just the same show continuing. Because right. it's just more wrestling and Raw's over or starting, just starting. You know, it was getting real at that point. So it was, uh, it was awesome back then. But now it's just like, you get a TV show for wrestling. It's got to be two hours for the most part. So uh, very, very different times for sure. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we go to the ring with WCW champion, the Giant, defending against Scott Norton. Norton attacks with the Giant, no cells, and takes over with a hard Irish whip and a power slam on Flash Norton. Norton powers back with a pair of corner splashes, but runs into a Giant boot pun intended, on the third try, and Norton rolls out of the ring. And on the outside, Scott Norton tries to smash the Giant up against the steel post. But the Giant moves, and Norton goes shoulder first into the steel. And it's a choke slam on the floor by the Giant, and it's a lot less safe than I was thinking. It, lo it looked realistic enough, I thought, for this match as Norton rolled back inside. The Giant gets the win in a minute and 42 seconds. Post-match, the Giant for a second choke slam on Norton. But it's Lex Luger attacking the Giant. Giant no-sells and slings Lex Luger out to the floor and into the aisleway, looking for another choke slam on Luger through the VIP table, but Lex Luger with a low blow, and he nails the Giant in the back of the head with an ice bucket. Dun <laughs> the Dungeon of Doom then run down to aid the Giant, and they run around Lex Luger, who looks confused, and he's like, oh, okay, and Luger just kind of escapes and walks away. And the Giant shakes off the shot from the ice bucket and stalks after Luger to the backstage area. Problem is, Steve, Lex is clearly on the announcer's stage when he cuts a promo by Eric Bischoff and Bobby Heenan. He proved the Giant feels pain and he has more tricks up his sleeve for their title match at the Bash, says Lex Luger. Okay, uh, this was more of that rush syndrome for me that we saw earlier with the Horsemen and the Renegade and Gomez. Nothing wrong with the angle but you smash everything together in such quick fashion that there's, there's visible flaws here. First, this, this, this made no sense to me. The Dungeon of Doom all run down to check on a guy who barely sells an ice bucket to begin with. Literally, the entire group run around Lex Luger in the aisle to aid the giant who needs no aid and allow Luger to just walk away. Two, the giant comes stalking after Luger up the aisle, calling him out by his name all the way to the back but the camera immediately cuts over to the left. Luger's standing right at the announcer's desk. How did the giant miss that? And why didn't he come back out? Do better, Booker man. 
<laughs> do they, when you book, do you think of every little thing like this? I'm just curious. Like, when I book, do I think of it? I would, but but I, I'm not. I'm not no, talking I mean, about. Like, I'm not talking about an, an elaborate six month storyline here. I'm talking no, about. No, 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 no. I'm mean, the like, good guy, and you're running right at me. And instead of hitting me, you're running around me, ignoring that I'm even here. It, it made no fucking uh, sense. And then the guy walks away hurt. looking for me, and I'm standing right next to him. Yeah, that 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 part. Do they? Is that more on the giant, or is that just more on the angle itself? That's that's just the booking. The giant wasn't to go attack Luger, so I feel like this was just a rush segment where they couldn't really play it all. You know, it's like Luger's already over here. The giant's walking yeah, backstage. The camera's cutting from guy to guy. I mean, I just, I don't know, man. It's just, it's like if you wanted right, him, why, why didn't you go get him? Yeah, or why not just have Luger go to the back, go to another segment, and then come back and have exactly him out and like, exactly, or just do an interview with him real quick. Uh, why have him go right over there and have the giant completely miss him? I, yeah. I didn't pay attention to, to it that close. I didn't, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, dude, storming to the back, and the guy he's looking for is over to the left. Like, come on. No, now. this was this was all blatant, and, and really, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't even have noticed so much the giant looking for Luger and Luger being the, uh, to the left, just standing there. Had I not noticed all of the Dungeon Doom run down, run around Luger, and Luger even looked confused, like, "Oh shit, maybe we're not supposed to be here at the same time." He had that kind of look on his face. And he's like, oh, well, they're not doing anything, so I'll just walk away. And it was it was really weird. Really weird. Yeah, definitely. But it's WCW. As we roll on, it's Lord Steven Regal with Jeeves in his corner. And Regal treats Jeeves a lot better than Squire Dave Taylor, so I'm not sure really what's up with all of that. Regal taking on the young up-and-comer by the name of Billy Kidman here. And Regal attacks at the bell. Regal mauls until Kidman dodges a hip toss. Kidman with a dropkick from behind and a tornado bulldog out of the corner. Kidman up for the 450 splash, but he misses. And Regal does an awesome dance here. I got to get a gif of this and put it up on social media. Regal does. It's almost like that Paul Orndorff elbow drop dance of sorts. Regal looking good here. Regal with a double arm capture suplex and a Boston crab with his foot on Kidman's skull. Awesome submission hold here. Steven Regal getting a submission win in 55 seconds. Post-match, Steve Regal refuses to release the hold. So it's Sting with a surprise receipt backhand, knocking his lordship on his ass. More great mannerisms by Steve Regal. Sting leaves as Kidman bails. A disgusted Regal gets up looking embarrassed and making more awesome facials as we head out of this segment. I don't think anybody has better facial selling than, than Lord Steven. Absolutely uh, he's, not. Uh, he's one of the best ever at that, and it's, it's something he's always had. Like for the first time you see Regal in WCW, he's had it. So um, uh, just excellent. He could do nothing. Like, he doesn't even have to throw a punch. He doesn't have to do a move. And you know exactly how he's feeling about a situation because of how good his facial reactions are. So Regal is a master at that. And we didn't and, even uh, need that Sting match earlier. We get the Sting back in here, a receipt from Regal popping him on the main event. That's all we needed. We could have exactly. got maybe a maybe like a two-minute promo from Sting earlier in the show just to get him on the show. But this is all we really needed. We didn't need that Ming match whatsoever. This 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 would have been more effective, I think, than had we not seen Sting wrestle earlier on the show. Yeah, I think so, too. As we head into commercial break, we get another bumper of the Nasty Boys cutting a promo on the public enemy. And now it's rant time for me, Steve. And it, it, it has everything to do with the match and yet nothing to do with the actual match. And it's the okay. Nasty Boys taking on Public Enemy. Nasty's out first as Public Enemy rushes the ring without an intro. Grunge has recently broken his hand, I believe one of his, th his thumbs or something along those lines. 
Rocco Rock noticeably also limping as he runs to the ring, and away we go with the match. And normally at this time I'd break this down, but this was absolutely embarrassing. Missed time spots, sloppy shit, public enemy willing to work and sell here. The nasties absolutely, and especially Sags, absolutely not, who just blatantly no-sells everything all match long and then retaliates. We get the split-screen brawling action around ringside from the four men, embarrassing stuff throughout. Some things didn't connect and were sold anyway. Meanwhile, the nasties no-selling things that clearly connected. Sags busts out a pile driver on Johnny Grunge, who can't even protect himself because he has a broken fucking hand, Steve. Rocco Rock goes up the aisle for a trash can to use, and as he brings it back to ringside, Sags immediately cuts him off and lays him out. He takes the can from Rocco Rock and beats him with it. I wrote piece of shit. Heading into the finish, Sags pump handles Rocco Rock, knobs to come off the middle rope with an elbow, but Johnny Grunge is supposed to hit knobs from the apron with his cast, but Knobs falls off the middle rope nowhere near Rocco Rock, and Grunge attempts to whack Knobs in the back on the way down with his cast. Just awful shit. You'd think that was the finish, but Knobs kicks out. Rocco Rock then goes to the top for a drive-by on Knobs, but Sags blasts Rock with a trash can while he's standing on the top rope. Rock takes the bump into the ring for the disqualification. Public Enemy getting the DQ win over the Nasty Boys in about 13 minutes. Following the match, Rock rolls out of the ring as Knobs takes the trash can still inside the ring, picks it up over his head, and drives it down outside into the back of Rock's head and unsuspecting Rock's head while he's standing outside the ring. The sound is so loud, it gets a big pop from the crowd, Bobby Heenan, and Eric Bischoff simultaneously. Rocco Rock legitimately pissed off, no-sells the trash can shot, and whips it back in the ring at knobs. I wrote, fuck the Nasty Boys. If I never had to watch them again, I'd be happy. I echo that sentiment. Man, uh, The big, I was like, this is a basic shit brawl between these two teams. 10-year-old me loved this stuff. 35-year-old me can't stand it. Uh, the walking around the arena brawling crap is just not my thing anymore. It was cool in 96, I guess, but now it's just terrible. It's lazy, and guys like Nasty Boys would really have no spot in this business in 96 if they didn't have these type of matches going on because that's all they can do. Just terrible. There really are pieces of shit, people, especially Sags. It seems like Sags was more of the guy that was willing, like, taking liberties of people. Uh, Nobs would do it, but there's a reason I think Nobs was around longer than Sags ever was. I go back to it a lot, but that match, I can't even remember which show it was, Uncensored 95 maybe, where he pushes Sherry, Sags did, who was, she was completely unexpecting it. Match is over, he's, everybody's leaving, and she's standing there, and he just runs up and pushes her on all that pop and everything that was all over the floor, and she landed right on her hip, and I guarantee it was probably the start of her back issues was that shit, because she couldn't protect herself. She's on heels, on ice, really. Just taking advantage of people like that is completely unprofessional, and Somebody should have beat the shit out of those guys. Yeah, and long Did gone you? are the days where, uh, like you said, I'm, I'm kind of over the whole brawling through the crowd nonsense. It was it was cool when it started, but after a while, he realizes just two guys walking through the crowd hitting each other, and 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 I'm done with like Hack Myers versus Axel Rotten type walking through the crowd brawls. But at the same time, this wasn't even that. 
This was the public right. enemy willing to cooperate and sell for the nasty boys. And Nobbs did sell, say, 50% of the things that they did to him. Sags either no sold 99% of everything. They literally, they would literally hit him as hard as they could with something. And then he would no sell it and hit them right back. And it was just absolutely disgusting. And here Dave Meltzer says in a totally horrible match filled with mistimed spots, public enemy beat the nasty boys on a DQ when Sags hit Rocco with a garbage can as he was on the top rope. Grunge was working with a cast on his arm as he apparently broke it the previous night. That gives him an excuse I don't know what the excuse was for the other three, but it was like watching the worst of indie workers. And, uh, you know, I think it's even worse than that. Dave, Dave seems to miss the, uh, what was happening here. And it was the nasty boys and especially sags. I, I don't, I don't understand the conversation they had each other right before they went out. We're not selling for these motherfuckers. Cause that's what this was. 13 minutes. I wrote this was given 13 minutes, almost everything on the show up until now when an average of maybe two and a half minutes, and this gets 13. And then that is what we got. Absolutely disgusting. I know Public Enemy weren't the greatest ever, but neither were the Nasties. And that was absolutely embarrassing. Disgusting behavior by the Nasty Boys, and they should have been fired over shit like that. And kudos for Johnny Grunge for agreeing to even work, but this should have never even happened, and, and I read again, fuck the Nasty Boys. Yep, I'm with you on that one. Seems like the public enemy get the short end of the stick when it comes to these things. But I think the Nasty Boys probably inherently didn't like the public enemy because they probably felt like public enemy were invading their territory on what they did. Uh, Nasty Boys were the brawlers and the street fighters and all that stuff. And then here comes the public enemy who do the same thing, really. They weren't going to give them anything because they didn't want the public enemy to look better than them and take their spot. And I understand that, but still, it's a work. You got to be professional out there, and they definitely were not pretty shitty. A couple of segments left here on Nitro, but first we get a Hulk Hogan video. Remember, he's still here, brother. And then it's a Kevin Green and Steve McMichael training video with the macho man Randy Savage. Also a feud recap put in there against Flair and Arn Anderson. Of course, uh, Ric Flair making the moves on Deborah McMichael in recent weeks here on Nitro. And it's off to the ring as Ric Flair and Arn Anderson have replacement opponents. Apparently, Sting and Lex Luger have agreed to defend their tag team titles against the Horsemen here tonight. So it is Sting and Luger, tag team champions, defending against Flair and Arn Anderson with Woman and Liz in their corner. Bobby Heenan on commentary all night long. He sounded confident until that video of Mongo and Kevin Green, that workout video. Now, Bobby Heenan seems a bit worried. And apparently, Sting and Luger have agreed to replace Gomez and the Renegade and put the tag titles on the line. That seems a little unluger-like to me. Sting pulling double duty as well. Lex no-sells chops early on by the Nature Boy and press slams and clotheslines Flair. And now Luger is all out of moves. Arn Anderson jumps in to no avail and the heels bail. But back inside, it's more clotheslines and presses and posing by Lex Luger. And then we get the Flair flip in the corner, but Flair runs into Sting on the apron. And I mock Lex here, but this really wasn't bad. Lex Luger for the limited amount of moves. His, his arsenal here, he was looking really good. He really cared at this point, it felt it felt like, in the match. Yeah, definitely. And I know Bischoff made the comment recently. Uh, he didn't have any intentions of hiring him. And then he got in there and he did everything that was asked of him and even exceeded expectations. And that's what kind of led into that title change on the 100th episode of Nitro. That's in 97. So uh, people trashed Luger, and it did get bad towards the end. 
uh, especially, you know, late 98, 99, the, the main event gimmick or whatever it is that he was going with. Wasn't very good at all, but 96, 97 Luger is still pretty good. Not 89 level, but not bad either. The heels finally cut Lex off, but Stinger tags in almost immediately. Sting gets the best of Arn Anderson and then Flair, and the heels have to bail yet again. The baby faces dominate through the first commercial break. Back from break, Sting almost immediately misses a Stinger splash in the corner, but Ric Flair goes up top. Stupid. Sting launches Flair off the top rope with a slam and a top rope clothesline for the Stinger, but Arn Anderson breaks it up. Sting with a superplex on the Nature Boy, but Rick then cuts him off, goes to the eyes, and the heels finally take control 10 minutes into the match. You know it's a Ric Flair match, a tag team match with Ric Flair when the, the baby faces dominate for the first uh, half or more than half of the match. The heels then dominate. They take over control on Sting, but Sting out of nowhere with the cradle. But Lex Luger has the referee's attention. Was that intentional? The heels continue to work over Sting as we head into our second commercial break in the matchup. Back from break this time, Arn Anderson tries the pump splash in the corner, but lands on the knees of the Stinger, and it's hot tag time to the total package. And Lex Luger now with his third press slam on the Nature Boy and a power slam for a two count. Luger clears the ring of both horsemen when the giant from out of nowhere steps into the ring. He's finally found Lex Luger. It only took him about 20 minutes of this match. He's finally found the total package. Luger attacks the Giant before he can even get both feet in the ring, but the Giant again no-sells as referee Randy Anderson calls for the disqualification due to outside interference after around 18 minutes of action. Post-match, Lex Luger goes at Giant, but the Giant lays him out. Before the Giant can do any real harm, though, it's Scott Steiner to ringside with a chair, and he tosses another chair to the Stinger. Steiner cracks the Giant with the wooden chair hard, twice, and Stinger over the Giant's head as well but the Giant won't go down. And then it's Luger, Sting, and Steiner triple-teaming the Giant, but he turns into the Tasmanian Devil. Remember the old cartoon Looney Tunes? As he begins <laughs> to spin around, swinging at anything to escape, and he has a standoff. The Giant has a standoff with the three super baby faces: Scott Steiner, Lex Luger, and Sting holding chairs in the Giant's standing ground. In fact, the WCW champion wants at them, but manager Jimmy Hart talks him out of the ring to wait for the pay-per-view. Yeah, it was your typical tag match with Luger and Sting and the Horsemen. Really nothing different or unique about this one. Uh, the end was cool as hell with Scott Steiner coming out with chairs. Those things weren't gimmicked at all. Those are those wooden chairs that I think Dusty Rhodes busted over Ming's head, and they just splintered, and Ming no-sold it, and Giants kind of doing the same thing here. But they make a sickening thud when, you, when they land. Very cool. This really makes the Giant look unstoppable. Uh, as he should be. I mean, this is a, this is how you build this guy up. And that was that was needed at this point for the Giant as well. After everything we've seen with Hogan, yeah, absolutely. And so seeing him stand off with three of WCW's best and kind of you know holding his own by himself uh, is pretty damn cool. So yeah, the, the end segment was a lot to me better than the match itself. So uh, before we conclude this episode, the Giant walking up the aisle trying to leave, Mean Gene stops him for a promo. The Giant says Lex Luger is a dead man at the Great American Bash. Luger can bring whatever he wants to the pay-per-view. The Giant promises Lex will leave on a stretcher. We'll have to see if that happens. Smart booking here. As you get Flair, Arn, and Luger in the final segment before the pay-per-view, since they're all involved in the double main events, the Giant run-in made sense to further his deal with Luger. 
Though these non-finishes are becoming more and more common, which isn't exactly great, they did manage to give the giant back a lot of his steam since Hogan has been gone. He looked like a beast tonight between the Norton match and requiring three top baby faces to fend him off with chairs, so uh, they're doing their damnedest to get the Giants' heat back now that Hulk Hogan's out of the picture. Yeah, absolutely, and it's working. As we close the show, Bobby Heenan goes on one final tirade, a hard sell, the big tag team match at the Great American Bash between Arn and Flair, Bobby Heenan in their corner, taking on Mongo and Kevin Green with the Macho Man in their corner, when out of nowhere, something catches Bobby's attention off screen. While Heenan is going on his rant about Mongo and Kevin Green, he sees something and takes off. Bischoff thinks Bobby is running from Macho Man and company, but then he sees that they are interrupted by an unexpected guest. The medium-sized Meng, Scott Hall, has returned. Bischoff, though, gets cocky and mouthy with Scott Hall. He doesn't want any trouble, but he asks him where the big surprise is. Turn around, asshole. There he is, it's Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash Diesel has arrived in WCW. A startled Bischoff sits on his desk and begs off. So he's afraid of Diesel, but not Scott Hall. Diesel says, or excuse me, Kevin Nash says that Eric Bischoff has been running his mouth. This is where the big boys play. Look at the adjective. Play. We ain't here to play. Nash mentions three guys ready to take on three of WCW's finest, but where are the WCW's three guys? They couldn't get a paleontologist to get any of the fossils cleared for action? Not enough guys off the dialysis machine to get a team? Where's Hogan? Where's Macho Man? Doing a Slim Jim commercial? Bischoff says he can't do anything right now, and their fight isn't with Bish. They want to fight? He will try and get them their fight tomorrow at the offices in Atlanta. So Eric Bischoff has no authority right here on Nitro, but apparently he does have the authority, however, to invite Holland Nash to show up at the Great American Bash in Baltimore this Sunday. He says he will try and get them their fight. Kevin Nash says the measuring stick just changed around here, and you're looking at it. As the WWFers leave the stage, Bischoff signals to cut the signal on Monday Nitro. So we close the show with Eric Bischoff inviting Holland Nash to the pay-per-view this Sunday, wisely and no doubt hoping to boost the buy rate. Yeah, very good segment. Some of the jokes were pretty damn funny. <laughs> uh, I like the line at the end where the measuring stick is changed. Like that's that's kind of iconic, to be honest. Like it's it's a really good way to look at it. Like business just changed. The measuring stick is different because we're here. Um, we're taking over type deal. So it's time to step up or get the hell out of the way. Um, so very good introduction by Scott, to, of Scott Hall a couple weeks ago. Nash's was just as good. All in all, very good segment there. And and now we're going to talk segment of the night. And I, I think at the time this happened, nobody's going to say anything except Kevin Nash debuting alongside Scott Hall. That's what everyone was waiting two hours for. It was It was surreal when it happened because you kind of knew it was happening. I knew it was happening. But you didn't know how and you didn't know when. And, of course, they put it at the end of the show to make you watch all episode for the debut of Kevin Nash. And, and it wasn't disappointing. It was like, holy shit. Now they're both really here in WCW. What, what's going to happen next? Who's coming next? As they kind of promised the third man as well. But since this happened more than 25 years ago, I can see how it loses context to some people. And they focus on a match in the ring of which there weren't very many that good here on Nitro. It was like two decent matches sandwiched a show of shit as far as a bunch of two-minute match, matches go. But uh, Sullivan and company still haven't figured out the right format for two hours. Two-minute matches, it ain't it. So I remember the impact that Nash debut had 
So I'd go with that. But if you had to go with something else, probably the main event here, uh, Sting and Luger versus Flair and Anderson. But that was more paint by numbers to me. We've seen that so many times, those guys. Uh, but in general, I mean, if you're just going for entertainment purposes, you'd probably have to go with the main event. Maybe somebody would even go Scott Steiner and Booker T. But I, I mean, for impact, for me, I mean, if you really go back in time and you lived it, you know that that last little segment there with Hall and Nash, that was the segment of the night for me. Yeah, I, that's the easy answer. I went with something completely different here. I'm looking at it from a time point of now instead of the impact like you did, which obviously I think the biggest thing on this show is obviously the debut of Kevin Nash. So I'm not discrediting that at all, but I wanted to go with something a little different. I think that my favorite part of this whole show as a whole was just all the video packages. Like you said, the promos, the in-between commercials, like you're really, they're highlighting people that you haven't really seen much of. You haven't, you're seeing people that don't get the chance to talk too much. Um, you know, the guys like Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio and Dave Taylor, uh, Conan. Um, you got to see feud recaps with Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit in the dungeon and the horsemen. They're not the greatest feuds, but being able to get a recap like that, which is something you did not get back in the day very often at all, uh, was very cool. So it, to me, I felt like they were taking advantage of the two hours. I'm with you. They still don't know how to book it as far as matches and pacing, but those little in-between things that we discussed throughout the show uh, were, were very unique and different and awesome for the time. And I think it was an excellent job of getting everybody over and giving them time. Even though they're not on TV, they still have a video. So that was cool as hell to me. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, very different. I mean, it's they're still thinking of, of new creative ways to be different than the WWF, or at least, uh, yeah, I mean, they're doing a really good job of filling things. They just got to figure out the way they're going to work these matches on TV. The two-minute squashes are just not a not going to keep you interested for two hours. But I agree with you as far as, the, like, that was really cool stuff. It was like, oh, that's what Dave Taylor sounds like. I'd never heard him talk before, you know, so it was yeah, exactly. cool to get that kind of stuff in there. As, uh, if I had to pick a match, I would go with Booker T and Scott Steiner. I'm with you. Pain by the numbers was the main event. So seeing Booker and Scott, like you said, cram 15 minutes into five minutes was pretty damn entertaining. And the ratings are in. Surprisingly, WCW drew its weakest rating. So whatever mainstream curiosity there was regarding Kevin Nash meant nothing in the ratings here as Raw draws a 2.7, <laughs> draws a 2.7 with a 4.4 share, while Nitro does a 2.6 and a 4.4 share. So they're just about even 2.7 and 2.6, but Raw gets the slight nod here. Uh, Nitro doing a 2.5 in the first hour, 2.6 in the second hour. So that's where we're at here. Raw somehow, and. Uh, I feel bad for the people that chose Raw over Nitro. <laughs> Me too. I don't know. You know, that talk about diehard WWF fans. I, I mean, I was a diehard WWF fan. I still wanted to see Kevin Nash show up on Nitro. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think it really, the, the change happens after the pay-per-view. Yeah. And, and I, think and it, I think it even starts next week. Yeah. yeah after the pay-per-view. Yeah, that, that, that will yeah. be after the pay-per-view. Right. I mean, I, that's how I was. Like, I was a diehard WWF. I was probably part of that 2.7. Probably flipped it over to the end to see who the big man was, and I probably stuck to Raw. But uh, after the next week, when what happens at the Great American Bash goes down, like I was watching WCW, like okay, 
what the hell's going to happen next? <laughs> you know, that type of deal. So uh, I'm interested to see where the ratings go starting next week and how 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 much they fluctuate well, before I, they hit the 83-week period. I won't spoil anything, but but I, I will say that the, things look a lot better next week for, for wrestling in general on the ratings. Well, that's good. So the real winner here, Steve, is it Monday Night Raw who who actually won in the ratings, or was it WCW Monday Nitro? Nitro. Um, I didn't think either show was very good. WCW had a lot more positives with all the stuff that we just discussed. I did enjoy the Booker T and Scott Steiner. I don't want to sit here and bag on a Sting versus Ric Flair Arn Anderson tag match, but you see one, you kind of seen them all, and especially by this that. era. Especially in this time frame, this is like the, the go-to. Well, let's just throw Sting and Flair in the ring together. So, like, by this point, I'm just tired of seeing it. But also, I still, that I talked about it, like, it seems like I talk about it every show, but the freshness of Nitro, just the colors and how bright, it has, like, that shiny new toy look still to it. I don't know how long that lasts. I really don't. I'll have to keep an eye on that myself when I get tired of seeing it. But for now, like, my raw just looks so dark and gloomy and old and behind the times and yep, uh yep, nitro is exactly so how it fresh. feels i'm just going nitro by default it seems that way there was nothing worth a shit on raw that i think compared to nitro yeah i think uh after the first segment of nitro i would have said nitro beat raw like that was booker t and scott steiner by the way for those who don't remember but i think exactly. after after segment one it was like okay they already beat raw so anything they do after this is just you know icing <laughs> I, I, I guess uh, i wasn't yeah, offended absolutely. by the tag match at the end it wasn't bad Every, they got to get with their shit in the middle, but you know the cruiserweights are coming. A lot of other talents on their way as well, so they're going to have uh, better talent. I, I can't even say better talent; they got some decent talent there right now. But they're going to have more talent to work with and get on these shows, and we'll have uh, longer matches uh, very soon. In fact, yeah, here on Nitro, maybe as soon as next week. So maybe uh, the format will change by next week here on Nitro. But uh, yeah, I, I got to go 100% Nitro. I mean, that, I could have told you that after the first segment. Like, yeah, they already beat Raw. Anything they do now, <laughs> it is what it is. Exactly. I could I could have turned Nitro off after that, and I would they would have beat Raw. So yeah. that's where we're at right yeah. now, guys. That's just the uh, the truth that's how of bad it. Raw is. Vince gonna have to get his uh, ass in gear here sometime soon, and He's I don't really think he really have... does. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. But I think the biggest impact on Raw is just the four weeks taping. Like you can't do that anymore. No, no you got to give yourself the ability to switch it up and change on the fly. I mean, you're just not. Yeah, and and, uh, and unfortunately, you know, next week is the fourth week of this taping, and I was gonna, I'm gonna touch more on that next week about what you just pointed there. But the four weeks uh, of taping is just insane. Uh, we ran a little long this week, guys. I do apologize. Just lots of WWF news this week. Next week, not so much news in the WWF or WCW. So we should be able to get right to the TV and uh, nice in and out next week, which will be the Monday Nitro, June 17th, I should say which follows the Great American Bash. It's also the last Raw prior to the King of the Ring pay-per-view. So a lot going on on both TV shows next week. I look very forward to the June 17th edition of the Monday Night War, Steve. Me too, man. It's going to be good stuff. It is indeed good stuff. Yes, I agree with you. And guys, I want to thank you for listening to us once again. We're back up and running here on Monday Warfare. It's been a blast. We'll be back with more of June as you know, the NWO right around the corner. Lots going on, even though it's not the best stuff in the world. Things are changing in the WWF slowly but surely. Yeah, we're getting there. Some new people and change of philosophy is around the corner. That's it is. Steve, I want to thank you for being part of this episode. I look forward to talking with you again next week on another edition of Monday Warfare. Can't wait.
All right, guys. Once again, remember, you can follow us online on social media, on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also at Monday Warfare, if you'd like, on Twitter as well. And uh, there, you guys, you'll see a lot of uh, pictures I've been posting uh, from these Raws and Nitros with some context above it. I got to thank Jerry Lawler for commenting, retweeting. Uh, Jeff Jarrett, a lot of these guys have been uh, really getting it up. Just today, Aldo Montoya, PJ Polacco, uh, just incredible retweeting and, and liking pictures uh, and, and some of the v- tweets I've been posting about uh, Aldo Montoya and Jerry Lawler getting in the ring, which we'll talk about more next week, that that uh, confrontation. Uh, but yeah, just uh, it's, a lot of wrestlers are even interacting. They're, they're really getting back into the Monday Night War as part of uh, the WrestleCopia podcast network. So I really appreciate them as well. And uh, Steve, man, I guess uh, until next time, it's uh, time to say goodbye. Have a good one, everybody. Talk to you next week. All right, guys. Once again, thank you. This has been Ray Russell's part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. This has been Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. I'm not the shark. I'm not a fish.